house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. I love this city. The most beautiful women reside in Manhattan. Just look around. How could a man ever choose to settle down with just one? Oh, blimey, I'm so rude. I haven't introduced myself. I'm... Alfie. Alfie. Alfie! I'm a blessed man. Dana. Who are you tonight? I thought we weren't asking those kind of questions. I never met, never mean to hurt anybody. You should do it, Alfie. Alfie, are you going to be okay? Yeah. No worries, I'm always okay. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast whose bucket list includes being asked to be a presenter at the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File, live from uh, isolation in our, uh, whatever, quarantine paradise. Chris, how are you doing? Our third episode from quarantine, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, yes. Okay, so wait, what category are you wanting to present at the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards? This is um, the, the t- question of our time. What what? I mean, you know I'm, I love Best Grown-Up Love Story. I feel like that is a quintessential AARP category. But, like, anything with actresses, right? Like, that makes sense. Sure, whatever gets closer together. to Judy Dench. We would present together. We would They would sort of, like, bring us out as just, like, you know, the two fools who have become world famous for loving the AARP mm-hmm. movies for grown We would be the best buddy movie for grown-ups or something. I also am a fan of Best <laughs> right. Intergenerational Story. I don't oh, know what yeah. way, way back we're going to be giving that to in the future. I was going to say, intergenerational story is always their most sort of fungible category where they can cheat as much as they want to. Yes, but... where it's like, how can we get Beanie Feldstein to show up but not nominate her? <laughs> I don't know if this podcast counts as an intergenerational love story because I am, of course, famously young. and um, uh, Yes, you know, uh, and I am famously um, uh not young, I guess. I don't know. Uh, we are talking we'll work somewhat about an intergenerational like love story we heartbreak are. because whatever's happening with Susan Sarandon in this uh, movie, we'll get into we'll it. Get I into do it. love Susan Sarandon uh, in this in this film. We are, of course, going to be talking about Alfie, the 2004 Alfie remake, and bec- the reason why we're talking about this movie is because it was presented to us by our guest this week. We have. One of my favorite people slash podcasters slash whatever. He's great. You know him from uh, TV's The Tick, from the Blank Check with Griffin and David podcast, um, from the greatest trivia, movie trivia team of all time. (laughs) Of course, I'm talking about Vin Diesel, Pig in the City. Of course. Uh, Griffin Newman, welcome to this head Oscar. Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm glad we finally made this happen. I feel like this has been in... The talks for a while, and I couldn't land on the right movie, and then this finally hit me like a bolt 
of Lightning, the only thing I could come on to talk about is the 2004 Charles Shire Alfie remake. I'm endlessly fascinated about why, and we'll get into that um, momentarily. First of all, thank you. We had a little bit of... I know we teased this episode on when I was on Blank Check t- uh, for the Blankies, which at this point is like many, many weeks ago. Um, and then literally world events conspired to delay it by a few weeks, but we made it. Multiple different health crises all attacked. <laughs> And have it's been a month in the works this episode. A month since we were originally supposed to record it, let's say. Listen, the Alfie remake was of course decades in the making, so if only Yeah. People were waiting. People were waiting impatiently for them to remake Alfie and they had to wait for for Jude Law to become a thing for it to happen. And I believe it, this will come into play as I tell my the the grand story of my relationship to the 2004 Alfie, but this movie was definitely uh, the release was delayed a couple of times. At oh. least one major time. I think that it was a summer movie at some point. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, post-Halloween, pre-Thanksgiving is the window we want to give for Jude Law's Alfie. Um, I've looked before- it up before, but especially the 2004 Jude Law movies of when they were filmed are so completely out of whack because like we've talked about especially 2003-2004 Jude Law when we did our Huckabees episode but like the star power ranking of how all of these movies aligned in his actual career is very fascinating and that you cannot talk about Jude Law's quarter four 2004 enough on a podcast like this it it is one of the most fascinating sort of rise and falls of uh an oscar career anyone has had within four months absolutely uh before we get to that though griffin we have a question we ask of our first time guests explain to us your what we're calling an oscars origin story what got you for the first time sort of into the idea of the oscars as an enterprise I, uh, the timing's really good on this because, uh, while in self-quarantine going down endless YouTube rabbit holes, I found something yesterday that I, I realized, oh, this is actually my, my specific Oscar origin moment, which is, uh, Toy Story was like my Star Wars in that it was the movie. I already loved movies, but it was the movie that made me go, I want to understand everything about how movies are made. I want to know everyone who worked on this. I want to understand everything contextually surrounding this so toy story was both the first time that i started paying attention to the box office because for once it felt like i had my version of sports scores i could be excited that toy story was number one at the box office i caught that at the back of an issue of entertainment weekly and then i started regularly looking at the box office but that year 1995 or the 1996 ceremony at the oscars uh, they gave John Lasseter a special achievement award for it being the first CGI movie. Uh, infamously uh, uh, considerate of spatial boundaries, uh, John Lasseter Good got point. his Academy Award, brought his uh, Woody and Buzz dolls on stage with him, and then when he walked off stage, they did an animated thing that Pixar made of Woody and Boz in black tie at the Oscars accepting the award and doing banter or whatever. I did not see that ceremony. But then I saw the photo of that in the newspaper the next day. And my parents had gone out to an Oscar party, and I was so offended 
that Toy Story was part of a TV event, and I not only didn't get to see it, but my parents <laughs> didn't even tell me about it. Uh, that I, I remember just waiting until the next year's Oscar ceremony, going, you need to bring me to that party next year. So the following year, I went to a, 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 an adult Oscar party with my parents where there was a betting pool, and it was the year of the English patient. And yeah. all I knew is that everyone liked the English patient. I hadn't seen it. Uh, I don't know if I'd seen any of the major nominees, but I just put down the English patient in every single category. And I came in second in the Oscar pool. It's not a bad strategy. Not a bad strategy. Not at all. So from that moment on, I was completely hooked. Because then I had the juice of everyone being like, this kid, Peter's kid, just got... (laughs) <laughs> the second most correct answers of anybody. Like, I felt so special, but it was literally just that I didn't overthink choices because I didn't have any frame of reference other than everyone seems to like this movie. So I was like the one person who got Binoche right at the party. Yeah. Because everyone else just assumed it's Bacall's year, she's got the campaign. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, if the English patient's going to win, why wouldn't the woman from the English patient win? Not a bad idea. That's That's... That reminds me of when I was younger, my dad in his office was the guy who wrangled the March Madness pool, the brackets pool, mm-hmm. for everybody in his office. And from a very sort of like early on stage, I wanted in on that. And eventually, I sort of became the the, the tallier. I was the one who sort of like marked everything up and scored it. And as I sort of got older, that was sort of like my role. And so by the time I'm in... I think it was college. I think it was like like freshman year of college. This was like a going like thing. And so we decided to up the stakes the one year and do a pool for the NFL draft. Like everybody try and pick the first round of the NFL draft, which is an insane and not fun thing to do because A, the NFL draft is not fun to watch. And B, nobody knows this shit. Like it's like March Madness is just like, oh, yeah. I like this mascot over this mascot. I'll fill it out, whatever. You can't casually do an NFL draft pool, you have to like really research in it. But like I had a lot of spare time at my work study job. So I just like researched the fuck out of this pool. I, (laughs) when the, the, the results came in, I was first place by like 30 points. My dad was in second place and nobody else came within like 20 points of us. It was just like the biggest, like read, read and nobody else blow out. We took everybody's (laughs) money and they never did that again. They never allowed us to do that again. And I feel like that's probably the same thing with you. Is just like, don't invite Peter's kid to the Oscar party next year, or at least don't let him be in the pool if he's going to take everybody's money. Like, well, but I'll tell you. So I came, I came in second. I think only the first place got anything. And then the following year, there was that energy of like, this is the kid. This is the wonder kid. And then I never came close ever <laughs> again. Every year after that, I overthought it. Then I started being like, okay, I'm going to read the Entertainment Weekly predictions. I'm going to go to as many websites as I can. Like, I'm going to try to game this. And I never got as close again. Because I think the next year was the Titanic year, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which, like, post-Titanic is a lot less of movies running the gamut with Oscar, like, was normal. That would, like... Your thought process behind English Patient winning a bunch of things is something that would go away, especially, like, our last two are really Lord of the Rings and Slumdog. And, like, 
Well, this is this is how badly I fucked it up. Is the next year is Titanic, the last year, you know, in, in of the '90s at least, where something runs the table. And yeah. I said, I'm changing my entire strategy. Oh no! <laughs> Everyone thinks Titanic's going to win everything, so I'm going to pick things in other categories. So my big move was I picked Full Monty for Best Picture. <laughs> I mean, that was the and the, I d- the feel good dark horse, right? Yeah, I don't even know if I was thinking through it that hard. I just said. You know, oh, well, if if everyone else is picking Titanic and I get it, then I won't get anything right that everyone else did. Right. <laughs> like, I wanted to get the Binoche thing. The year after right. that, I successfully picked Shakespeare in Love over Saving Private Ryan. So that Smart. was kind of my comeback. But that yeah. was only because I had seen Shakespeare in Love and not Saving Private Ryan. Um, but yeah, Full Monty year, I, I blew it out. Yes, Shakespeare in Love, I picked it up again, and then I don't think I ever had a a good year. The 96 Oscars, though, do you remember this at the very beginning? Because Billy Crystal hosted after two years out, right? Because Letterman had hosted 94 and then Uh Whoopi in 95. So the Billy Crystal was like, he was back. That was one of the stories, he's back. And they did the little, like, short film they do at the beginning where, like, Billy inserts himself into all the movies. And he inserted himself into the clip of The English Patient, and then it was the scene with the the biplane sort of like coming down and like shooting at him in the desert. Yes. That's and it's Dave, it's Letterman in the biplane. Yes, yes. Yes. I I remember this vividly and I had almost no frame of reference. I hadn't seen the previous ceremonies. I didn't understand the Letterman legacy. Yeah. And then it, Letterman in the plane is going first you introduce Uma, introduce Uma to Oprah and then you introduce Oprah to Uma. And it's like totally playing on the Oprah Uma joke, which like, followed dave for basically the rest of his career essentially i loved yeah. dave as an oscar host i should say um as yeah, strange I think that's a and good as sort of weird bit. as he was i still find oprah uma funny i think it's funny i mean it's it's so stupid but it's it's very funny that's why it's funny because the... it's stupid it's exactly yeah. and the that the kicker to that joke was oprah Uma? Uma? Oprah? I feel much better. Have you kids met Keanu? It's a good ending to that bit. Anyway. I'm into it, yeah. Alfie 2004. Griffin, you had the epiphany... Uh, probably a couple months ago, because I've, I've, as you mentioned, I've sort of mentioned to you for a while. I'm just like, what do you want to do for for this at Oscar Buzz? Come on the show. We'll talk about whatever. You know, the doors are open, and finally, it like a light bulb went over your, your head, and you said Alfie 2004, and I want to know why. There, there are two movies where I very, very confidently exclaimed to my family, "This is gonna sweep." And the first one is <laughs> Pay It Forward, which I feel like has been picked apart by too many people. But it is a thing that my father still doesn't let me Us live included. down. Us included. We went to see... <laughs> yes, right, right, exactly. I was like, that's already been taken. But uh, we, I went to see Pay It Forward. They did one of those, like, you know, a week early preview screenings or something to try to, like, build word of mouth. Yep. Um, and I went to see it with my mom and my dad. And the second the movie ended and the lights came up, I turned to them and I said, picture, director, actor, actress. I just listed the categories that I thought it was going to win. 
And my dad was like, are you kidding me? That's going to get nothing. That movie is a disaster. Several careers. Right, right. He was like, "That's that film's a calamity. That's not going to win anything. And I was like, we'll see. We'll see. So he never let me live that down. And then the other one where I wasn't as bold in my proclamations, but uh, my grandmother for many years worked as a talent liaison at a film festival in uh, France. And so as a byproduct of that, she has long been a member of uh, BAFTA. Um, and around the time that Alfie was coming out when I was in high school, uh, she would sometimes throw the screenings to me if it was a thing that she didn't want to go to. And BAFTA was so lax in sort of everything, both in terms of uh, if you're a talent liaison, you can be a voting member, but also uh, you can just have your grandson right. come and take your place at the screening. I went to see an Alfie 2004 screening, which I went to because I was just like, movies, I'll go see any movie. On a school night, a screening, I will sure. go see any fucking movie. I don't think I was particularly excited for it. I don't think I was unexcited for it. The excitement was, it's a movie. Um, and I went to see it. It was, I, I want to say a screening in September, because I feel like Sky Captain had just come out or was about to come out. Like, I was mm -hmm. seeing yeah. it right before the fall of Jude was about to happen. When the narrative was, this guy right. is so ready to be a movie star that they're putting him in every movie this year. But people hadn't actually gotten worn down by it yet. And it was a BAFTA screening of Alfie at the beginning of September, what ended up being almost two months before it came out, uh, and he was there doing a Q&A afterwards. And the thing just fucking, it was like like James Brown at the Apollo. The thing just killed. It was like <laughs> cheap trick at Budokan. Wow. Like, unsurprisingly, Alfie playing for New York, like Upper East Side, old lady BAFTA members was just through the roof. Mostly expat, like, UK, yeah. now living in New York, you know? While That's he's the in the building, too. Yeah. <laughs> right, and he was in the building afterwards, and he was so fucking charming, and I was just like, I am completely sold. This thing just fucking works. I know it's a comedy, I know it's a little broad, I know it's a little bit more of a mainstream play, but I just can't see when something is this effective it not making some sort of splash. Uh, at the awards season. And then I just kept telling everyone. I was like, I'm telling you, Alfie, that thing's going to fucking surprise you. Wait till you'll see Alfie. And uh, it came out. Uh, no one liked it. It was kind of treated with uh, violent apathy. Uh, and then yeah. I was like, what's the deal? Why am I the only one who sees this? Took my grandfather to see it because I was like, he's a nice old man. He wants to see a nice old-fashioned Hollywood movie and took him to see it. And within two yeah. minutes, I was like, what the fuck was I on about? Like two minutes into watching it for the second time, I went like, this is fine. This is whatever. This is the most marginal movie of all time. Why was I so hot on this? Of the Jude Law sort of like, you know, six with an asterisk, I will say. My thing yeah. about the Jude Law six movies in 04 is that The Aviator is a cameo and Lemony Snicket's a voiceover. So right. really it's four. Yeah, um, I think people used six because they wanted to sort of sell the overkill angle. Of course. But um, of mm -hmm. those movies, Alfie, I think, is the most is the one that like least exists, especially yes. from like mm -hmm. even Sky Captain, which I think also sort of like faded into nothingness pretty quickly, yeah. still has the angle of the technology that they use. It, it sort of and... changed the industry, even if that movie in particular isn't thought about that much as a film. Uh, mm -hmm. Alfie, I agree, is the one that exists the least and also, for me, kind of fascinatingly, 
feels like the one that was a real attempt at who is Jude Law as a movie star. Because Huckabees is supporting. Because Sky Captain is such a weird experiment where everyone involved in that movie was like, I don't know, we'll see what it is. It started out being self-financed. It then became a studio release. You know, Lemony Snick, as you said, is voiceover. Aviator's a cameo. And then what's the sixth one that I'm forgetting? Closer. Closer. Closer, right. And I mean, that's the other one, but that feels more like oh, look, he's working with this big prestige filmmaker. He's working with this big cast. He's in the hands of a master. Alfie was like, a studio is designing a film around Jude Law. Even though an Alfie remake had roughly sort of been in talks for a long time, even though it was supposed to be uh, Ewan McGregor at some point, it felt like from the moment they went, it's happening, it's Jude Law, it's Alfie, everyone kind of went like, Oh, that makes sense. That is the perfect movie star vehicle for Jude Law. He's been sort of an Oscar-y guy, but if he's going to have a mainstream crossover film, Alfie feels like the right outlet for him. And it both doesn't work, kind of is responsible yeah. for like putting the brakes on his career, and doesn't exist. I said both and then listed well, Chris, three things. Yeah, no, it's true, though. Chris, you've seen the original, though. Yes. And Which, like from what Michael Caine was doing and like it is fairly close like it's mostly modernized especially with like the open discussion of abortion like that whole plot line gets shifted to the beginning of the movie and then still is kind of the emotional payoff but like on paper Jude Law in this role based off of what Michael Caine is doing in that movie makes complete sense but doesn't end up working he just ends up being purely unlikable where it's like of course he's doing unlikable things he's still not someone you necessarily root for in the original but michael kane's charisma completely makes it pull pull it off and you would really think that jude law could do it too but like he ends up being you can't root for this guy at all he ends up being such a smarmy asshole the whole time that it's not charming and it hits at exactly the right time where people where the tide was starting to turn and people were getting sick of him when this movie came out so it's like you feel like it is funny, like you're saying, this is a movie that has completely, like, evaporated, does not exist, but, like, it came along at the time when people were starting to hate him, and it's like, you can feel that in watching the movie. Like, the movie yeah. fuels that because he's so... Bleh, I don't know. I, I well, have, like, uh, no... Oh, what are you going to say, Joe? Sorry. I was going to say no slight to 1966 Michael Caine, but like it's not like the original Alfie would have been sold on the sex appeal of its lead actor the way that no 2004 Alfie was absolutely sold on the uh, this shot of like I remember all those trailers had that shot of Jude Law in the tank top in the pool hall sort of like putting his hand over his heart and sort of yes that's yeah. exact Griffin Visual medium podcast as our friends. Uh, I did. Uh, I West, did a perfect impression Sushi. at my desk. A perfect impression. Hand over his heart and sort of like <laughs> swooning dramatically. Um, that was in every single trailer, and of course caught my eye. But it was they were selling this on. Isn't Jude Law this like charming, devastatingly handsome rake of a man? You know, sort of. And um, I can't imagine that's how they sold Michael Caine Alfie as charming yeah. as he may be. Yeah, it's more of like a wit charming thing than an overt sexualization of his image. I right. mean, he spends most of the movies in suits, <laughs> the most of that movie in suits. Um, yeah. I, I have a bunch of thoughts here. So I, I rewatched the original last night. 
and oh, so, wow. so I have Good a word. really, really fresh uh, comparison between the two of them. I had not seen the original since before the remake came out, and I so barely remembered it. Um, the original yeah. movie, he is uh, such a creep. Uh, he is like <laughs> by today's context, yes, absolutely, 100%. He's a hundred percent creepy dude. Right, but he's also, um, he, I mean, he's really like a, a pickup artist. I mean, the whole movie is him mm-hmm. sort of negging these women. I mean, he's an out-and-out asshole. And I'm not just trying to do the thing of, like, you know, of course all movies look different 50 years later. Um, but I think part of what that film was getting at was a sort of shifting uh, type of masculinity, and that movie is in this mm-hmm. space where it's sort of coming out of the kitchen sink dramas, you know, and like this sporting life and loneliness of a long distance runner and sun- Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and all these movies that are about these very angry working class British men uh, who cannot deal with their emotions. They don't understand all this weird fury and testosterone and uh, horniness and rage and sadness that they have inside of them. And Alfie is that plus, like, Deadpool. Alfie is that plus, <laughs> you know, breaking the fourth Direct wall. Direct audience address. Right, right. Yeah. Like, he doesn't know that he's in a movie explicitly, but he's directly talking to the audience and explaining himself to them at all times. He's and, telling his story, for sure. Yeah, and the way the original film works, because it's trying to capture, I think, this moment of that type of man who was being depicted in the kitchen sink dramas... Uh, the way they're transforming during a sexual revolution, you know, this, the sort of, um, uh, what am I looking for here? Um, the nuclear family and, and the emphasis on that within England mm-hmm. kind of uh, imploding for a generation of young men who are suddenly feeling like, this is my time to just keep sleeping around as much as I can. But the way that Michael Caine's yeah. directed dresses work in that film, it feels like you're reading, like, uh, uh, the wh- what's the book called? The one that Mystery wrote, you know? I mean, it's like, it's like oh, modern actual, pickup that, artist that, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because it is, Mystery. he's sort of talking to the camera and saying, like, you never give her more than an inch, you know? You always have to put her down. I mean, most of the movie is him negging every single woman he's with, you know? Uh, yeah. And then explain to the movie, camera... Though, I think is still, like, smart enough to critique this type of character, right? And well, yes. What, it feels like the Charles Shire version is playing at that, but it does it in such a shallow way that, like, if it was a smarter movie that was about early 2000s vanity and shallowness, like, it could approach that in, like, a generational type of way, but it doesn't. I think that is the, the only kind of interesting read on the movie. Because I was looking here. Manola Dargis uh, said, the new Alfie doesn't chase social significance. It just wants us to have a good time. And the original Alfie is a very bracing, uncomfortable movie. As much as his reputation is, oh, it's fun. Michael Caine's charming. And it's the thing that made him a movie star. It is a movie that's dealing with a lot of ugliness and the culture at that time and this movie is trying yeah. to just be wouldn't it be fun to watch jude law seduce a bunch of women for two hours like that's sort of right, the full right. extent of this movie's interest except that not to give this movie too much accidental credit 
it almost becomes interesting as a movie about a man who has no substance whatsoever, who is so completely mm-hmm. frivolous that the movie's social commentary is, that. this is a guy who was constructed solely through Esquire magazine-style tips and has nothing actually details important going on. Sure, Details Magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get too far into it, though, we have now set a record at going almost a half an hour before the 60-second plot, <laughs> which is truly... I love this new trend of ours. Um, But so Griffin, as our guest, we are going to give you the task of describing the plot of Alfie 2004. I love how I keep saying Alfie 2004 like it's Jason X or something. (laughs) Yeah. Like this is the one that's in space. Death Um, Race 2000. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So Griffin, we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock for you. Are you ready to do uh, the, the plot description. Yeah, I don't know if I need 60 full seconds for this, but tell me, uh, I'm ready to go. All right. All right, ready and go. Okay, so Jude Law is a guy named Alfie who talks to the camera like Deadpool, and he's a, an asshole uh, who just likes women and wine, as he says. Uh, and he works as a limo driver with his best friend Omar Epps, who is constantly sad, is letting the emotions of relationships get to him. And over the course of a hundred so minutes, uh, we watch Jude Law just sleep with and treat poorly numerous uh, women played by uh, highly overqualified actresses uh, until he finally realizes that his life is meaningless, uh, that he has pushed everyone away from him and turns to the camera and asks what it's all about, and then uh, Mick Jagger takes us home. That's the entire plot of Alfie. <laughs> With ten seconds to spare, so now we can have an extended end credits where all of the crew get their fo- their pictures uh, on the screen. Which, which is, is, it's a bit from the original film, which in the original film, you're like, wow, this is really fucking cool. Like, that they're not only, the it original film has no 60s, opening credits. Say, this end credits. Yes, and then this, it feels way too cutesy, even though it's the exact same thing. I mean, the dreadful yeah. Mick Jagger song doesn't help. No. That's worthy of a whole lot of discussion there, like, on its own. I, the, the interesting thing about the actual, the movie, the movie, is this succession of women that he sort of blazes a trail through from Marissa Tomei and Jane Krakowski. He then has sex with Nia Long, which is sort of the emotional sort of turning point of the movie because he regrets it. It's sort of the first time he seems capable of this emotion we call regret. And then accepting that his actions have consequences. (laughs) Right, right. Sienna Miller, who was this sort of like party girl who becomes kind of too much for him. And then Susan Sarandon, who is the one who gets to be sort of turns the tables on him. She's sort of more Alfie than Alfie. And she, yeah, she she's is, the one that gets to hurt him, whereas right, he's hurting yes. everybody else. And she Which is, is why she's the most likable character. Because 100%. we're all kind of rooting for her. Yeah. You want to see him be taken movie. down. It's it's Freddy versus Jason at that point, And there's a clear person who should come out on <laughs> yes. top. Um, yeah. No, I think... After a uh, cast full of Kelly Rowlands. It's it's also interesting watching these two back to back that uh, she's the only character that is directly analogous to one in the original film. It, Jane Krakowski actually mm-hmm. a little bit. There's the same thing where they do some type of like spin on most of them. 
And pretty wild spins. I mean, and most of the plot movements of the film are wildly different. I mean, it is a very loose Mm -hmm. remake of, you know, a play that then became a film, that then became a novel, and then there was a sequel that was loosely adapted from the novel, but with a different cast and director. So there's, like, a lot of material there to work from. And this is really just riffing on Alfie as if he's one of, like, the great archetypes of storytelling. It's sort of like, Alfie is Sherlock Holmes. Here's another adventure of Alfie. What would Alfie be like in today's society? The movie that this is kind of similar to in an interesting way talking about sort of like a studio prepackaging a movie star and convinced that a remake is the perfect vehicle for them. Uh, the Russell Brand uh, Arthur, where you have oh this... God. You have a British star who has sort of started to build, but it feels like the industry is fully convinced that they're a leading man, and the public has not fully been sold yet. And they just pick a movie that right. everyone loved in the past... With a performance that made someone a movie star. And they go, that seems like that's roughly the same character type that matches their personality. That should fit into their movie star persona. But with a misunderstanding of what worked in the original film. And also smoothing out all of the edges of the original film. Um, But, but, you know... So I've never seen the Arthur remake. And all I know about it is that it co-stars both Jennifer Garner and Greta Gerwig. Yes. what what roles do they sort of take? Is one the the girl he shouldn't be with, and then one is the one he ends up with? Greta Gerwig's the Liza Minnelli, right? Yes. Gerwig's the Liza yeah. Minnelli who he loves. Jennifer Garner is the woman who he's sort of arranged marriage supposed to be put together with. I see. Because she's the daughter of Nick Nolte, and there would form some merger of their companies. Wow. Of course Nick Nolte, Nick Nolte is in that movie. Right, yeah. And Jennifer Garner is the John Gielgud? Correct. Jennifer Garner is closer to being a villain in that movie than she is any sort of love interest. He's only interested in Gerwig, and they keep on sort of foisting Garner upon her, and she, like, tries to uh, sleep with him constantly. Um, But both of those, yeah, it's like they don't understand what made the original movie work, and they don't totally understand what's interesting about this new movie star that they're trying to make. The other line I saw in one of the reviews here, Owen Gloverman and his Entertainment Weekly review said, Jude Law would appear to have all the attributes attributes of a movie star. Looks, humor, rogue charm, yet there's one he could use more of, an anger that might ignite his smooth presence. And I think that's dead on. There's something to the fact that this character is so exclusively charming guy even if the movie is trying to say, yeah. well, he's kind of like a vapid like asshole. But his performance yeah. is so fully just, I'm so smooth, uh, that, yeah. that it becomes really boring. Uh, and it makes him less likable. Whereas, like, Michael Caine is an abusive asshole throughout that movie, but you spend the entire yeah. time leaning in trying to understand what's going on in that guy's head, there's an interesting contrast between how much he is explaining about himself and how little yeah. it's actually uh, showing any sense of awareness of how he's behaving. Uh, whereas this film, it's like he is just a charming sociopath, you know? This yeah. movie is sort of tapping into, like, the details magazine metrosexual culture of the early 2000s, the idea that, like, a form of emotional I made empathy. that as a note that this was the 
that this was the apex of metrosexual yes. mm-hmm. metrosexuality as like a thing that like people would write articles about. I think and... this is the most metrosexual movie ever made, even down to <laughs> the extent that it's like. You know, it, it truly is. Michael Caine, it, all but the Shelley Winters character, who is the direct analog to the Susan Sarandon character in this, and has almost the gotcha. same scenes, the same arc, the same payoffs, mm-hmm. everything. Um, she's the only person who he actively pursues and shows interest in. Um, everyone else in the movie, every other woman in that movie, he's pretty much negging, yelling at forcing her to do housework, you know, constantly pushing them away, insulting them. Um, but it, it's in a way less disturbing, in a way, I want to say, in a way right. less disturbing than the Jude Law thing, where it's like he has almost devised the perfect way of performing empathy. Like he's the sensitive mm-hmm. guy. Like he is so considerate yeah. of their emotions and their feelings, but actually just has nothing going on inside. You know, he's like Patrick Bateman in this. Yeah, it's whereas, like an evil head game. Right. 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 Whereas Alfie, but it's like this not, is... Oh, I was going to say, the movie's not attuned to that in a way to make it interesting. No, no. And it's like, right, the or only like interesting... that really as like, this is what this take on this movie is going to be. Right. You or can't like, give Charles Shire... That's happening with men of this age. That's the thing. You can't give Charles Shire any credit for it, and the movie only has this power now, like 15-plus years later, as a time capsule of the mm-hmm. moment it was yeah. made. But the fact that the movie is so hollow almost is the interesting statement. Of, like, in 2004, the yeah. equivalent of Alfie is a charming sociopath in a movie that feels like the cinematic equivalent of a charming sociopath. That is, like, all (laughs) about trying to charm you with nothing of substance really going on underneath. Well, the one thing I think is interesting is um, that Jude Law, for most of his career, has taken on these roles that do kind of comment on his own, Mm -hmm. you know, good looks and, you know, sort of, like, easy charm. Even back to something like Gattaca, where he does have that, when you mentioned that, like, he needs that, like, anger, he has that streak of anger in Gattaca, and it almost comes from the fact that, like, he had this fantastic sort of, like, exterior shell that has now been taken away from him, and he sort of has this rage that he doesn't, that he, you know, can't be this genetic ideal anymore ripley is so much about commenting on his sort of like good looks and you know has it all kind of a persona um ai where he's literally just like a handsome robot like um huckabees even huckabees is all about like unpacking the psychosis of that like person who lacks closer depth but lives exactly on their smile like yep Closer, where, like, so much of Clive Owen's character is just, like, this guy, really? And Julia Roberts is just sort of, like, he's very good looking. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, Closer is so interesting to me that it comes right after Alfie, because, like, Griffin, what you brought up from Manola Dargis's review, that it lacks that anger, it feels like everything he is doing in Closer is the missing piece to what this movie and this performance needs. And it's the one that comes, like, right after, to the point that... He was so immediately, like, dismissed, and every the narrative was we were sick of him, that it's, like, he doesn't even get considered or, like, talked about with Closer. Like, everybody, it, it's Clive Owen and Natalie Portman that get the rave reviews. 
Julia Roberts kind of gets dismissed because it's like, oh, she wants to just say fuck in all of her movies now, and Julia Roberts has come in this movie. That, like, nobody really even talks about Jude Law in that movie, and I think he's really good yeah. in it. Um, but yeah, it's but I, the one where a lot of people, I, I see a lot of people being like, oh, everybody's good and closer except for Jude Law, and it's like, no, he's so good that you fucking hate him. Um, because he's so well, he does so well at embodying that sort of really callow, um, detestable, twerpy sort of like, you know, skinny Brit character. And that's what it feels like the lesson is of his career is that he's not actually right for the Alfies. It's a wrong assumption that he should just be charming. He should be, he should be cast as scumbags. It's, it's, it's a mystery. Yeah. Right. I mean, the performance he's giving in this finally finds its home in The Holiday, which I do not like the Jude Law, Cameron Diaz, half of The Holiday. But that he's trying to give that type of performance in this. He's trying Mm -hmm. to give like Tom Hanks and Sleepless in Seattle. You know, he's trying to give like this is just charm. This is classic Hollywood charm which there are very few people who can pull that off and he works fairly well in the holiday because it's also a smaller role but if you're the lead of a movie if you're a movie star movie stars need to have some kind of innate tension you know i mean that's what grabs an audience and keeps them focused on you for the entire length of a movie if you're playing dickie greenleaf and you only have to be in a 30 minute chunk in the first act you can just be perfect golden boy you know um Mm -hmm. But yeah, but even that true. performance has more internal tension than this, you know? The Holiday does not really. There's a misdirect, but he only really has to carry, like, 30 minutes of screen time in that. And uh, it, it's that yeah. sort of misunderstanding of, well, he's so good at all this stuff. He's so charming. He's already got this reputation of everyone being in love with him. Why couldn't he make a movie that's just everyone being in love with him? And it's like, beyond the yeah. fact that maybe that's not playing to his strengths as an actor, it's also, we don't want to watch that fucking movie. And as proof to that, that's not yeah. what Alfie mm-hmm. is as a film. Alfie is watching an incredibly self-destructive man who can't figure himself out. It's the reason why the yeah. legacy of that movie is so much what's it all about Alfie. It's the sort of like boldness of the ending right. of him turning to the camera and recognizing this entire movie you've just watched has kind of been about nothing. My life is completely fucking yeah. meaningless. And then the famous song playing. I want to kind of go around the horn before we get too sort of um, into it uh, with Jude. I think, um, I think we've, we've sort of, we've nailed it. You guys, we did such a good job with you. <laughs> um, I, t- I kind of want to go around the horn, though, with the actresses, because I feel like, I, I think one of the things about the Oscar buzz of this movie was you looked at this and you were just like, look at this great sort of like collection of actresses. Any one of these Somebody's going to break through. Yeah. Right. right. You're like, so someone's going to, with- Alfie's going to produce at least one supporting actress nom. It has to. Back when my, when I kept, I continuously fall, fell for the fallacy of, oh, there's like six really good contenders. One of them's bound to break through. And it's like, no, that works against you when it comes to building Oscar buzz. You don't want that internal competition. Anyway, mm-hmm. I wanted to start with Marissa Tomei because my feeling was, why does Marissa Tomei keep getting cast as this particular woman? The sort of the cast aside, like Can't we saw it in What Women Want. Yes. We saw it in Crazy Stupid Love. Like, why is she the one who gets dumped on, basically, in these movies? And I feel like... And you I, would always just, rather see the movie about her character's life? N- always. Yeah. Without fail. 
Even when she ends up at the end with Stephen Gagan, which made me laugh out loud. <laughs> Director of Doolittle. Who gives the better performance, Gagan or Graydon Carter? In this, I think it's it's tough. I mean, I think I think Carter plays better in terms of the intended effect. I think Gagan is more natural. Like Gag- Gagan right. sticks out less. Graydon Carter, you're watching it, and at the time when I didn't know who he was, I went, "This is clearly not an actor." This is clearly someone who's famous for something else who they put in this movie for some reason. Whereas Gagan, it's like, if you didn't know better, you would say, that's some guy from off-Broadway, you know, who's not incredibly charismatic, (laughs) but he seems vaguely comfortable being in front of a camera. I did initially mistake Stephen Gagan for Adam Pascal when I first saw him, and it was a a similar momentary thing of just like, who am I looking at? Um, yeah. Uh, the thing with my thing with Graydon Carter, when um, our friends uh, Katie Rich and Richard Lawson both started working for Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. and I was uh, I th- I had this very very stupid joke of continuously just telling them if you run into Graydon, just tell them tell him I loved you in arbitrage. Just like just <laughs> leave that out there. And now I feel like Alfie is almost like is would be a better one for that. It was just like I loved you in the Alfie remake. He's I will say he's actually pretty good in arbitrage. Like arbitrage he gives a real performance. He, he fits well yeah, in that. This he, he does. you can tell he's not an actor. Uh Griffin, you are you are my go-to person when it comes to uh, opening credits order, the with and and credits. Who oh, yeah. gets the with and who gets the and b- between Gagan and Graydon Carter? Oh, that's a great question. Because uh, in this huh. movie, I'm pretty sure Sarandon gets the and, like in the actual. Is to yeah. me the with or is that Sienna Miller? I don't think it has a with. I think it's yeah. just and Susan okay. Sarandon. Um, but in the in our perfect world where Stephen Gagan and Graydon Carter get the with and the and, how do we distribute that? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I think about uh, Outbreak, which I just recently watched on Netflix as I think everyone else in America Stronger man is than doing. I. Um, and the billing on that movie is, obviously it's uh, uh, Hoffman, Russo, for- Freeman above the title, but then when you go deeper into oh, the Oh, it is Freeman above the title. Above the title. No withs, no ands. It's just there, those three names, right? Oh, okay. And then when you go deeper into the block, it's uh, with Donald Sutherland and Kevin Spacey. And I was kind of blown Spacey away by that one. And. I know, and I've been reeling from it because Sutherland is, no spoiler, spoiler, the villain of the movie. He is the ultimate yeah. villain of the movie. Yeah. He is Donald Sutherland. He is a legend at that point. He has been a movie star for yeah. decades. And Spacey... He's your hand, yeah. Right, he is 100% your and, to the degree that watching it and how prominent he is in the movie, it is surprising that it isn't uh, Hoffman, Russo, uh, Freeman, and Sutherland above the title. Spacey, that is I was going to say it should be above the title. It should be the above the title and. Spacey is, that is the year he is breaking out, and he plays a member of the team. And he is not incredibly important. He has a lot of screen time. He has a big dramatic death scene. Spoiler, everyone dies in Outbreak. Um, But it doesn't feel like the role is on paper an and role. And he's also not necessarily the more famous person. So in that way, I feel like it's almost... I want to follow the Outbreak model and say it's with Carter and Gagan. That would be the analogy. 
counterpoint to your outbreak take yeah. though um i agree with you outbreak happening in 1995 makes it insane spacey shouldn't be he should not be the end yeah like that's not until you've actually won your Oscar, which is not until early two thousand, early nineteen ninety six. Anyway, yeah, it's that that is the year where he has seven, he has Outbreak, and he has Usual Suspects. And by the end of that year, he's a movie yes. star. And Outbreak was released first of those movies. Yes, insane. Yes, it was. My counter though is at some point in the mid nineteen nineties, after Shawshank, let's say everything after uh-huh. Shawshank, which Outbreak is the next year. Morgan Freeman should never not be the with or the and in any movie that he's in, even unless he's yeah. like the very lead. I think Morgan Freeman is your definition of a with or an and performer. I think you put that respect on his name. I think it's <laughs> you know unless he's top billing. I'm so my sure feeling he was is a outbreak. with performer for the Nolan Batman's. Was he? I want to say there's he, a lot of with contenders wasn't. there. Rutger Hauer's a possibility. Yeah. yeah, those those billings are weird. I think he's just sort of smack in the middle because we ran over these when we covered them on blank check. Uh-huh. Kane always gets second billing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. You know what? He is he is and on begins. Kane is second. Oldman. I'm that's the one I'm always surprised by. He doesn't get with her and. Dark Knight. While you look that up, I'm just yeah, going to say Outbreak should be Hoffman, Russo, Spacey, Cuba Gooding Jr., The Monkey, <laughs> yeah. Patrick Dempsey, <laughs> with Morgan Freeman and Donald Sutherland. It's That's also kind of surprising. I think Freeman gets the and on all three, and I think there's no with. That's interesting. Pr- that's, that's pretty Again, weird. you put respect on his name. You I put think respect that's right. on I think his that's name. A, so, yeah, so I, I sort of took us off track from the Marissa Tomei thing. Yes. What, like, how do we think she does in this movie, and do we feel like, you know, she just blanket statement deserves better? She deserves better. Uh, yes, she better. absolutely deserves better. No I question. would also make the blanket statement that all the female performances are pretty good in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Even Sienna Miller, who you can tell is the the most sort of green mm-hmm. of all of these performers and is really relying on a kind of natural charisma and sort of like, you know, looking the part. Um, she I, has a spark to her. I think her which like, is weird underplayed heartbreak in her last scene kind of makes everything else work so much better kind of a way. Just like kind of the notes of surprise that this that it has in a movie that has like no surprises. It's nothing yeah. compared to her National Theater Live Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, which no. Have we all heard her dialect? I have. know. Yes. Living with someone you love can be lonelier than living entirely alone if the one that you love doesn't love you. It's that horrible Mr. Burns, isn't it? You leave Mr. Burns out of this! Griffin, uh, Marissa Tomei thoughts. I, I love Tomei. I think she's pretty much always good. I mean, it is kind of like... Uh... A, a catch-22 that I think the reason she always gets stuck with these really thankless roles is because she's better at them than everyone else. She is particularly mm-hmm. good at playing these disrespected women who the characters should be yeah. throwing themselves at. Uh, so she ends up playing them a lot, but she always just does more than you should. And and in the way that you were saying, you know... Uh, uh, it's really satisfying as an audience member to see... Uh, Sarandon uh, put Alfie in his place. It's also very satisfying to watch her tell him off the couple of scenes where she gets to do that. 
I just, mm-hmm. she's yes. so good that I remembered her being in more of the movie. And it really is yep. two scenes at the beginning, one of which is very short and is just her pushing yeah. him out the door. But she's got the one real scene where, like, in the first ten minutes, you see their entire relationship, the kid, all of that. Then she ends it with him. Then he walks by her once at the birthday party, and she watches, he watches her on the other side of the window. And then the scene at the end... I mean, it's like she really probably had three days of filming on this, um, but mm-hmm. she does yeah. a lot with it, and she makes the uh, the pain of the character. She's the one person who's kind of adding uh, depth to the movie by making you recognize the pain that he causes to other people around him from Absolutely. the beginning. Absolutely, before mm-hmm. the movie starts I trying would say- to underline that. Yeah. While yeah. also being the one of them that it's like, you could totally make this work. This could be the one that, yeah. like, gets you in line. Or, and like, he should. you can yeah. stop the bullshit and just be happy with this person. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's where the charming sociopath stuff kind of comes in. Because in the original, the first yeah. real relationship you see him have is the woman he gets pregnant. Then she keeps the child and he's sticking around trying to sort of help raise the child until things fall apart. He goes distant. That's like the opening chunk of the movie before he then goes back out into the field and starts dating women again. And this movie, it's like in the first 10 minutes, you see him with Marissa Tomei. They have chemistry. They're charming together. And he gets along well with her son. The fact that he sort of fucks it up just makes him kind of like, what's wrong with you? You know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I think Marissa does that kind of wounded thing better, I would say, comparatively than Jane Krakowski does. Yeah. With her character, Dory, of course. Jude Law is, spends most of the movie finding Dory. Which is and... like the full extension of her performance, like a watered-down version of her performance in Nine on Broadway at the sa- roughly the same time. Roughly she, the same she time. totally yes, exactly. gets this part because of Nine. Yeah, this is them casting yeah. her because of that. And I feel like she's a little two-dimensional. That's not entirely her fault. She only really gets two scenes in this movie. Yeah. And... Um, most of them, one of them is your direction is be really hot for Alfie. And then in the second scene, it's be very sort of like unbending towards, you know, his attempts to reconcile or whatever. I don't, you know, I don't even think he really wants to reconcile. I think he wants her to forgive him Mm -hmm. at the end of that movie, which like. Absolution. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, good that she doesn't give that to him. I feel like my favorite of all. I don't know. It's tough to say because I do love Sarandon. I think Nia Long does a very, very good job. In this I movie. agree. Long is so good. Yeah. As Lanette. Uh, she is the character who um, Alfie does get pregnant in this movie. She's Omar Epps' girlfriend. And, and it's sort of... You know, Talk sense. about an actress that truly deserves so much better than was ever They're alone. very, very sexy together. Their, their scene in the pool hall is legitimately, I would say, compelling because... Of the chemistry between those two actors, and she the, gets the most watchability to do. of the movie yeah. drops off when she leaves. I think. Yeah, I'd agree. I, and this is, she is hypothetically the best supporting actress candidate. If this movie worked, if this movie was good, both in the yes. way that character is written, the real estate she takes up in the narrative, and the actress they cast and her commitment to it, 
that is what should be the best supporting actress candidate. And she is and trying it's her hardest to the original too, because this is the plot line that ends with the abortion. In yes, sort of like it feels like they're twisting that story because you think that she gets an yeah. abortion, but she doesn't. She keeps the baby and raises it with Omar Epps. But that's a very, I mean, the character in the arc is yeah. very different. The original film, it's a very different performance. It's a much smaller character, and the narrative. Mm-hmm ends with her getting a sort of back alley abortion at the very end of the film. That's sort of his final blow is uh, mm-hmm. having to experience that and see the repercussions of his action. We for should the say first that time. actress is Vivian Merchant, Oscar nominee for the original Alfie. Yeah. And she's very good. She's great in it, but it's like a Vera Drake esque plotline. Whereas this it's like this yeah. sort of who's the dad, yeah. the best friend, all of that is invented for this movie. Um, and then finally, we we mentioned Sienna Miller, and I want to get around to Susan Sarandon, who I do think is giving a very fun performance. I think it's one of those performances where she knows that she's, you know, the kind of role that she's playing. And I like when she, Susan Sarandon, gets to play up these kind of sexy older woman characters. I think she does it very well. I don't think this movie asks her to sort of move outside her comfort zone very much, but also... It's a comfort zone for a reason. I think she plays yeah. these kind of characters very well. She's the one that I would say, if there would have been some supporting actress traction, it probably would have gone to her, because this is also like a kind of a era where it felt like she was going to get a, possibly another nomination, like things with like Igby Goes Down, the Banger Sisters were happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, Igby is, like, a really interesting take on who is Susan Sarandon over, you know, 55. Like, what is the new persona now? What is the type of supporting performance she can give? This movie, it feels like, is just uh, interested in, oh, Susan Sarandon is one of the actresses over 55 who most men still find sexy. Like, that is all they're really asking <laughs> yeah. her to play in here. They had she, some kind of data on a, in a report somewhere, yeah. I mean, it's one of my favorite Onion stories of all time, but it's a, a guy masturbates to Susan Sarandon for old time's sake. <laughs> oh my god. And I always think about that story in relation to this performance. Like, it's just kind of like, who's the who's the woman where there's no work we have to do? Everyone already thinks of her that way. She's constantly talked about. It. It's like her and Helen Mirren are the two actresses where guys are like, I mean, I'd still yes. like look at her now. Like, I would still. Uh, and she's yeah. she's giving a good performance. But the movie is really only saying as long as she shows up, that's. That's 90% of what the movie wants from her. Um, if I can loop back around to Sienna Miller for a second, that's another thing that makes this film so interesting in terms of its kind of, like, uh, cultural history is uh, he starts sleeping with Sienna Miller during this movie. Uh, and yes. he, of course, had yes. been with Sadie Frost mm-hmm. for a long time, had two children with her. It becomes a huge press scandal, and the paparazzi are, like, following them incessantly, uh, and so this movie had in his this defense, baggage. Though, yeah. In his defense, Sadie Frost had been turned into a vampire by Gary Oldman by this point, so it was tough to remain it's, married it's to her. It's hard to come back from that. It's 100%. hard to get close to her with that Aiko Ishioka costume. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There was a lot. There was a lot keeping things distant. But there's that thing of almost any time that two movie stars fall in love making a movie, the movie ends up being kind of a calamity or at least a flop. And then you go, mm-hmm. like, the added layer onto this of it was infidelity, 
it was like a marriage broken and that he was so being pushed down everyone's throats as this is going to be the new guy. Jude Law's the sexiest man alive. Everyone please accept it. That it felt like it started to yeah. ding him. Like he he had some there was something that helped the campaign to make him a movie star when he was a guy who got married very young to an actress who was a little older than him and had two kids mm-hmm. before he became a movie star. It made him feel yeah. pretty grounded. And then suddenly when he was leaving her for the new flavor of the week, Sienna Miller was presented as, here's the new it girl. She's going to be the new star. She's got what's supposed to be the breakout part, the scene-stealing small role in Alfie. Uh, I just remember there being so much expectation to see her in this film because there had been like nine months of her being a tabloid headline before anyone had really seen her act unless you had watched Keen Eddie. And uh, I think she's very... Right. I think she's actually very good in this. I remember being surprised Mm -hmm. uh, how substantive her performance is. And it helps that like it's, it's, uh, it's one of the only characters with real nuance... Um, I mean, and it's very much of its time culturally watching this. It it kind of hit me how much she is the 2004 version of like a New York meatpacking district scene woman. Uh, It is kind of galling. And I can't believe this didn't uh, piss me off more when I was watching the film at the time of its release, especially considering I grew up in New York City. But this is one of the most egregious New York City movies, it's all about New York City, and at no point does it actually look like New York City. The whole thing is filmed. (laughs) Right, right, and no block looks like New York City. I mean, they're constantly trying to dress things, but just none of it actually feels New York City-like. It either feels hermetic and set-bound, or it feels like London with some grime put onto, uh, you know, the deli on it. Better or worse, better or worse than Eyes Wide Shut in that regard. I mean, worse because it's not... Eyes Wide Shut is more interested in creating its own weird city that doesn't have to resemble New York City at all. Alfie just feels like they are failing to make London look like New York. To which I ask, why not just set it in London then? I don't care. It doesn't have to be New York set. Right. The original film set in London. It's not like they made him have an American accent or be American. He's British. So it's either, either the movie shoots in New York or it's set in London. But to shoot it in London and set it in New York is a disaster. Uh, that have been said, I think, think Sienna Miller of- is very specifically playing that era of New York City nightlife, sort of 20-something, yeah. very well. Do you think part of Charles Shire's pitch, though, was just like, this is the American Alfie, and it had to right. be... American, and then they cast Jude Law, and he's like, it doesn't matter, it's still going to be American. Well, no, because the film was developed at first with uh, Ewan McGregor. I mean, it was like, at no point were they thinking about doing this with an American actor. And maybe his pitch was, it's the American Alfie, but then shoot it in goddamn New York. I mean, it's so many of, like, the small day player roles in this film are British theater actors doing American accents, you know? Yeah. In a way that's kind of odd. And it just doesn't feel like New York. It doesn't even feel like a fake Eyes Wide Shut movie New York. It just feels like a bad cover band version of New York. Let's get into the Charles Shire of it all. Griffin, I'm glad we have you on here. I said uh, before you got onto the call, um, I think you are going to be a good person to sort of have a Charles Shire take. I don't know whether I am mis misreading you on that, but it feels like 
you've got some thoughts on Charles Shire, who is, uh, if listeners don't know, uh, Nancy Myers's ex-husband. Uh, they uh, had written screenplays together. They had written the Private Benjamin screenplay together, among other things. He is essentially... Um, if you want to think of him as the Alec Baldwin and it's complicated, I wouldn't blame you. Like that is sort of um, b- people reading into it's complicated autobiographically about Nancy Myers will generally slot in uh, Alec Baldwin as a Charles Shire analog. Uh, thoughts and feelings about him as a director. I was just going to say, I mean, I, it's kind of the obvious observation, but even a lot of his directorial credits when he was working with Nancy Myers, like we still kind of ascribe those movies to Nancy Myers in a way. It's the Father of the Bride movies. It's Baby Boom. Luckily, we do not ascribe the affair of the necklace to Nancy Myers. Was that his right. first movie post-divorce? Yeah. So that's this is my whole take on Charles Shire. I think he is a guy whose reputation has only gotten worse as Nancy's reputation has gotten better because it felt like yeah. for so long, oh, they're a team. They do things together. He's the director, so it means they get more. He gets more the lion's share of the credit. But, like, Irreconcilable Differences, Baby Boom, Father of the Bride, I Love Trouble, Father of the Bride Part 2 are all the two of them together, coming off of a series of screenplays that they wrote together before that. Irreconcilable Differences is about Peter Bogdanovich and Pauli Platt getting divorced. And Peter Bogdanovich is one of these filmmakers who had, like, an amazing miracle run until he divorced his wife. Uh, left her for a younger woman and then never really made a good movie ever again. And it's one of those things like the Marsha Lucas sort of thing where sometimes some filmmakers, it becomes clear after they fuck up their marriage how much their wife was not just their creative collaborator but kind of the secret sauce of the entire thing, if not maybe the dominant creative force. And I think it's now easy to give more authorship to Nancy over the movies that they did together because she has done a better job doing that type of film on her own and he completely Uh flatlines after they split up. Uh, Parent Trap is the last movie they work on together. It's her directorial debut. They write it together. I think he's a producer on it. They get divorced right about, I think, when production starts. Uh, They're going through the divorce while filming the movie. And the only two movies he makes after that are The Affair of the Necklace, which is him trying to, like go out of rom-com zone, out of studio comedy zone, make a serious period drama oscar film with Hilary Swank right after she wins that just fucking, like, face plants. And then this three <laughs> the years later. flop, yeah. Yeah. And then he hasn't made another movie since then. It feels like this was him trying to prove that he could do the same kind of movie without Nancy, and he, he fails. Yeah. He fails, and she continues to just perfect it more and more. That's a it's nominated for an Oscar, Oscar costume design. Oh nominee. right, it did oh, get an Oscar fuck. nomination. That's true. Wow. Have any of you guys seen I Love Trouble? Because I have. Yes. And I is it as terrible as its reputation? Okay, so this is another one of those weird movies that we watched all the time as a kid, and it's like impossible to really remember anything about it. Some <laughs> sometimes when I remember this movie, I conflate it with Radioland Murders. Because um, famously, Julia Roberts and Nick Nolte hated each other filming this movie. That was right. like the thing that yeah. I always heard about it, but I never saw the movie. I, we watched it a lot. I remember it being like fun, but I couldn't say that it is a good movie from my memory of it. It also probably of the Charles Shire Nancy Meyer collaborations feels 
in my mind, the least like a Nancy Myers movie. Mm. Like, that makes sense. That is, yeah. Sure, it's a romantic comedy, but like it has none of the trappings beyond that of what we love Nancy for. That, that's the thing. I mean, you're talking about the trappings, like the things that feel definitive and defining in a Shire Myers movie are all Myers things. I think with mm-hmm, distance, yeah. it becomes clear that he was like sort of a, a pretty decent journeyman uh, screenwriter director who didn't really have anything to say or any sort of distinctive style. Um, and, yeah. and really he just had the good fortune of for years being married to someone who was a real filmmaker and had a real voice and a real perspective. And once she left him, it, he was just a husk. I mean, this is like a movie made by someone who has no real kind of take on anything. Griffin on blank check. I believe I recall, and maybe I'm conflating this with, um, you're in David's take on the Sister Act movies, but I feel like I, I remember hearing you guys talking about the Father of the Bride movies and preferring part two to part one. Yeah. And I'd like to, if that is your opinion, uh, have you defend it here because Ooh. I disagree. Well, I can barely defend this. I'll say I think it has a lot to do with, for whatever reason, and David and I have both made this, like... Uh, realization together at the time that we were whatever age two was so much more in circulation on cable than one was it is Mm -hmm. it remains true to this day that two is on tv so much more than one and i find that like fascinating but also a little puzzling i I I honestly probably just like a relatability thing of what that movie is about versus the first one because like so many people especially like on basic cable can relate to having a baby but like this whole george banks in the first father of the bride is a way more frustrating and isolating character because he's kind of an asshole and yeah that's true like it's it's a movie that's about what it's about but it's like all through the lens of just an asshole whereas i feel like there's more entry points to the second one probably my feeling though about part two is part one martin short gets such great reviews for giving this great sort of out of left field side character mm-hmm. performance as Frank, the the wedding planner. Yeah. And then in part two, they're like, well, they loved Martin Short in the first one. Sure. Let's essentially give him this movie. And I think it's too much Frank, too much Martin Short in the yeah. second one. And for whatever reason, I think it's it's funny because I love Diane Keaton. Obviously, she's much more central to the plot of Part Two, mm-hmm. but I think she gets more interesting notes to play in Part One. In Part mm-hmm. Two, there's a lot of like, "I'm pregnant," like, "What a wild and wacky thing." And I think watching her in Part One sort of watch her husband go slowly crazy and try and like you know fix him essentially in that is. I think more interesting than what she has to do in part two. I don't know. I yeah, I'll say. Fair. Yeah, I think it's just I probably saw part two eight times, and I probably saw part one one time. And even to your point, yeah, I haven't seen either in full since I was younger than ten. And if you asked me at that yeah. age, I would have told you it is impossible for a movie to have too much frunk. That is probably why I preferred <laughs> part two. Is I said, give me as That's much a good of that guy as you got. Experience frunk. Yeah, yeah, I yes. think that's true. A hundred percent. 
I will also say Steve Martin's scene in Father of the Bride Part 1, where he freaks out in the supermarket about the disparity between the packaged hot dogs and the packaged hot dog buns, is incredibly relatable and yes, real. that's a good scene. <laughs> yeah. Possibly that movie is Enduring Legacy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Charles Shire, interesting, fascinating. I think the 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 Shire Myers uh, story, which of course culminates in their daughter directing that movie, whose title I can never think about, but it's Home Again, uh, Home Again, Home Again, Home Again, about the nice boys. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think it's almost a uh, know, a Glenn Close, uh, Jonathan Price, the wife situation. Except uh-huh. he was generous enough to give her co-writing credit, you know, rather than pretending he did everything. But I think she was really doing almost all of it for that whole time. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. their careers post-divorce speak volumes. Yeah. Chris's mm-hmm. favorite movie of 2018, of course, The Wife. Yes. Number one. <laughs> Love those It's been moments. a while since I shot on this movie on Mike. You wait, you don't like oh, the wow. you don't think the wife is a perfect movie? Great movie. Great movie. Fantastic. <laughs> um let's pivot to Mick Jagger as all podcasts mm-hmm. must do. Um Golden Globe winner for Old Habits Die Hard, Critics Choice Award winner. I think everybody expected yeah. that that was going to be an Oscar nominee. It was coming on the heels of what I sort of in my mind tend to think of this trilogy of baby boomer favorites getting oscar nominations uh mm-hmm. dylan wins in 2000 sure. for things have changed from wonder boys mccartney for vanilla sky yeah for vanilla yeah. sky uh-huh. and now uh and i think everybody assumed that that trend would continue with mick jagger yeah in 04 and by the way it's not like the best original song nominees in 04 were what's the word good sure so it does puzzle me <laughs> that jagger i just want to before we get into it i want to read off the nominations the original song oscar nominations 2004 this was the year that beyonce performed three songs at the oscars and we didn't recognize it for what it was she performed believe from polar express along with um, Josh Groban. I feel like we mentioned this very recently, so I'll just go through it quickly. Believe with Josh Groban. Um, she sang Mini Driver's song from Phantom of the Opera, Learn to Be Lonely. Wow. Terrible song. Garbage. And then um, from the chorus, we all remember the film The Chorus. She's uh, saying Look to Your Path along with, I believe, a boys choir of some sort. Or this another. is the French yeah, movie. About I a forgot boys choir. about that. Yeah, jeez. All of yeah. the French original song nominees, the greatest of which is the Triplets of Belleville. What was that movie? Paris yeah. twenty six or Paris like seventy six? Oh 46, yeah, forty six something like that. Yeah, yeah. But then the other two nominees were the one that I probably would have voted for, weirdly enough, which is um, "Accidentally in Love" with from Shrek two, oh, as performed by the Counting Crows. Yeah, my worst cultural opinion is that that is a great song. <laughs> Finally, the Counting Crows made it to the Oscar stage in the 2004 Oscars. Long overdue. The winner, the winner performed on stage at the Oscars by Antonio Banderas and Carlos Santana, um, Al Otro Lado del Rio, from The Motorcycle Diaries, which was originally um, where the the guy who won, um, Jorge Drexler, I believe. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I have to look this up now. he Jorge wrote Drexler. it and performed it in the movie, but it was wrote like a thing that they the couldn't, like, the Oscar producers were only letting famous people do the songs, hence three songs by Beyonce. 
Exactly. They were very concerned about people tuning out from the Oscar telecast, which, I mean, I'm not normally on the side of Oscar producers, but like this year's nominees. Bad crop. They maybe had a point. Sure. And then, but so Drexler wins and he gets to the podium and he basically starts singing the song from the podium because like, fuck you, I'm going to sing my own song at the, you know, at this Oscars. I'm surprised, let's say, that Jagger couldn't crack this lineup. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, but I, I think like, it Alfie speaks, doesn't exist, but right. still. I think that's the answer. I think it literally is just Alfie doesn't exist so hard that even two mm. months later, a Mick Jagger song couldn't get nominated. Even two months later, they're like, well, the chorus is, is much right. more memorable. Yeah. <laughs> well, by the time the Globe nominations were happening... Alfie would have still been in theaters. Like you would have had to waited, waited at least like two months or something when like Albie, Alfie fully like fell off the face of the earth. I will say I was shocked at how little money Alfie made. It made oh, yes. barely more than Huckabee's did. It made Which, thirteen like, domestic. It is to... Yeah, yeah, insane. right before Thanksgiving. <laughs> right, right, a wide release. Yeah, uh, no, it is like it, I think it's also interesting that. So much of this movie's lasting cultural legacy was that song, uh, which plays in the end credits of the original film, the What's It All About, Alfie, uh, written by Burt Bacharach, uh, done by Sonny and Cher, uh, which was like a song that still got played, uh, was uh, parodied and deleted scene from Austin Powers and Goldmember. What's, What's it all about? Austin, is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when we sort it out, Austin? Are we meant to take more than we give? Or are we meant to be kind? Um, and then this movie (laughs) opens with Joss Stone singing that just like tinkling of what's it all about Alfie over a pink (laughs) tinted Paramount logo. And then after that, the rest of the score is pretty much an interpolation of this Mick Jagger song. Like it's, it's odd to take a movie that is so famous for the song that came out of it and go, no, we're redefining this movie around this new song that we wrote by a different person. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it for feels half like a second in those opening credits, I thought it was Jennifer Hudson singing. I did too. It sounded Alfie. exactly like Jennifer Hudson. Because this movie happens in the two seconds that Joss Stone was a thing. Right. Like, they yeah. have to go to whatever British singer is, like, of the moment to be like, this is the 2004 version, and it happened the to Duffy be... The Duffy of her time, uh, Joss Stone. Yeah. Which is interesting, because in a few years, Lily Allen, when she was a thing for all yeah. of a minute, would do it because she has her brother, Alfie, and she has a really good version of this song. The the thing about Jennifer Hudson that would have been interesting, would they have asked her to do this, was this would have been mere months after she was on American Idol. So yeah. um, truly, well, where were Elton John's connections? Elton John famously furious that Jennifer Hudson was eliminated too soon on, on American Idol. You know, they tested it with her version of Circle of Life. It didn't test well. 
Jennifer Hudson got eliminated on singing Weekend in New England the Barry, uh, during Barry Manilow week on American Idol. And I still say that that version of that song fucking slaps. It's so... It's cheesy, of course, because it's Weekend in New England by Barry Manilow, but it's so fucking well done. Goddamn vindicate Hudson about on American Idol is she did bad and then went home oh, when she a, did a take. well. <laughs> she started good and then got bad because like she had terrible songs on American Idol. Well, and that was during the era on American Idol where they were very much like the themes were all very cheesy. Simon Cowell has this like incredibly mm-hmm. cheesy. It, rem- it took him forever to let them essentially sing contemporary songs on that show because his idea was... Well, and a lot of great performers like were falling into this trap like Jennifer Hudson where it's like we are week after week going to shove a square peg into a round hole and we're going to screw you over because of that. Like, I guarantee you there was a Burt Bacharach week at some point during American Several Burt Bacharach weeks. That's exactly the kind of stuff that Simon Cowell wanted these people singing. Yeah. Griffin, you were going to say you had a Jennifer Hudson take. Uh, no, I was just gonna say, uh, how fucking vindicated must Elton John feel about the fact yes. that he made that much <laughs> of a point about Jennifer Hudson at the time, and that she won a goddamn Oscar and has remained relevant for the following, you know, decade plus. Yeah, now they're, they're both Oscar winners, and yeah. good for them, and they can, they can congratulate each other at the secret Oscar winner parties in their secret... Oscar winner coronavirus bunker that they're all at somewhere. But you're right. I mean, it does feel like Mick Jagger should have been part of that collection with Elton John, with Bob Dylan of like American, you know, musicians who loom so large in our culture that the Oscars just throw up their hands and go like, you should have one of these as well. Yeah. To the point that it makes me wonder if this had some weird eligibility thing, like it didn't make the cutoff, like it wasn't written, because like the other awards bodies have looser like rules for original song than Oscar does. So it's like maybe this was a song that wasn't especially written, wasn't exclusively written for the movie. I feel like I from 2000 it being predicted, on, though. no, it was eligible. I just think from 2000 on, like every couple of years, the the best original song branch has changed the rules again. They're constantly trying to yes. figure out how to make that category relevant again. And so they'll do those things where, like, well, it's about how relevant the movie, the song is to the movie. There were years where they didn't, right. they, they devalued songs that were in the end credits over songs that were in the body of the mm-hmm. film. This was definitely eligible, yes. but it might have gotten some strikes against it. I know there was a period of time, I don't know if they still do this, but rather than people voting by listening to the song, they would vote by 
a screening where they would screen the songs in the context of their position in, uh, in the movie. At some point, yeah, they got like a DVD that had the songs playing in context. But right. even so, things that were just end credit songs would get nominated. Yes, yes. Yeah, they definitely don't, they definitely have in recent years started to push back against that thing. But it's interesting because, as you say, Griffin, that seems like the end goal of this is to uh, make the category more relevant. And weirdly enough, it had become it, you know, I think 2004 through, I think only in the last few years has it sort of started to bounce back and become a little bit relevant again. I think um, certain years are better than others, but I feel like one thing they could do to make it more relevant is to relax their rules about what mm-hmm. counts as 100%. an original song yeah. mm-hmm. in terms of like we talked about last week when we talked about the bucket list that the and not I'm not advocating that John Mayer's say be an Oscar nominee <laughs> but it's that kind of a thing where like that was ruled ineligible because it was written for an album but wasn't pro- wasn't produced and so it still made its first appearance uh, in the bucket list, but because it wasn't like written for the bucket list, this is what got come what may disqualified yeah. for Moulin Rouge was like, oh, you didn't write it with the idea of it being a Moulin Rouge song in mind, even though it was never released right. until it was in that movie. Yeah. And like that to me seems self-defeating and stupid. Well, it's also I think they get caught up in that thing of uh, we're we're giving the award to the film that can contri- the song that contributes to its film the most rather than the best song in a movie you know and i feel like you go through yeah. the history of best original song and especially like in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s even to a degree in the 90s it's usually like which song that happens to have been in a movie that permeated the pop culture most wins best original song right and then you get to things like we've talked about this before you and i but like the most egregious oscar snub in the world is like how do they get away with not fucking nominating see you again from furious seven my fast and furious bias aside for a song that had that much of a cultural impact that is that integral to the movie that is good Yep. It's just like, do you imagine that they went like, well, but there are other songs that within the body of the film have more of this and that and like whatever. And it's like, motherfuckers, you were giving best original song to Shaft. That's what you should be doing today. Yes. <laughs> you know, if, yes. If, the, if the theme from Shaft slaps, you give it the goddamn Oscar. You don't overthink it. I think I, I, I've, I had similar thoughts for something like. Um, and this was, of course, not a pop hit, but like something like No Dames and Hail Caesar. Yeah. Just Hell like, yeah. Oh, yeah. It works so perfectly within the context of the movie. They clearly saw Hail Caesar because it got that production design nomination yeah. or whatever the hell it got. Costume I don't design. think it was on the eligibility long list, though. I, I remember th- that was my axe to grind that year. But like, yeah, and it, and, it, and it totally should be. I think as w- whenever we talk about the best original song category, this all like it all coalesced in the 80s where like the 80s was the era where songs that mattered to the movie were also pop hits like uh i've had the time of my life or love lifts us um, up take my breath away all that kind of stuff where like it was uh, you know well integrated into the movie and also everything that was nominated in that category for the 80s was a pop hit like it's yeah. very mm-hmm. it's real impressive all your footloose songs and whatnot let the river and, run yeah exactly Exactly. One thing before we uh, hop into the game portion of the podcast, we got to talk about Chris Rock in the Oscars and him essentially um, 
salting the earth when it came to when it came to Jude Law's <laughs> career and also like his Oscar ability. It like, was the he's final never blow. Been nominated again. Yes. It was the Where, final. Yeah, right. he was coming off of the Cold Mountain nomination, and then it was obviously the the autumn of Jude and Chris Rock making. I would say I'm not going to go full Sean Penn on this, but I do feel like it was an easy joke, and it was. I think Chris Rock as an Oscar host, this is where he sort of like is not my favorite as an Oscar host because he does sort of take this thing of like, I'm just a regular guy. I don't know about like the ins and outs of movies. I'm just going to take this from like your your regular guy perspective. And his regular guy perspective is like Jude Law ain't shit. And, and you know, it was probably a little more mean than I would have liked it. And I do think it did fall into that fallacy of... Jude Laws in six movies, and it was really yeah. I think that's what really doomed it. I mean, I I rewatched both of Chris Rock's uh, speeches recently, and he the the second time he hosted, he did a similar bit about Jada Pinkett Smith about her saying that she was not going to attend the Oscars because they didn't nominate any people of color that year, and his bit was. That's like me saying I'm protesting having sex with Rihanna. I wasn't invited. You know, like, he does this bit of, like, you're so outside of the conversation. Was that the year of Magic Mike XXL, though? Because that was, like... I think it was. And she should have fucking been nominated for that movie. Thank you. That's exactly it. That's exactly what I'm saying. So it's the same kind of thing. I do think, in a way, what was more damaging to Jude Law was the Sean Penn moment over the Chris Rock moment. I feel like in instances like that, the star being able to laugh it off oftentimes only helps their star power. And I remember, Uh like, Uh I don't know if he's in the audience at that show. I don't think they cut to him reacting. But if he had issued some response afterwards and, like, quote-unquote, taken it like a champ, it probably would have endeared people to him. Sean Penn coming out and just killing the buzz of the entire night, like, 45 minutes later... It, A, like, hurts Sean Penn's reputation. I feel like that, yep. like, nails home the, oh, my God, Sean Penn is the most humorless man in the world thing. Uh, and, yeah. it, and it also makes the Jude Law thing feel more like a fight than it needed to. And that was, like, the one-two yes. punch. Like, the Rock thing, like, kicked him back remember... on its heels. Penn defending him was a knockout punch. Do you remember why Sean Penn what the impetus was for him to defend Because they had just worked together on all the King's men. That's exactly right. Right. What a footnote. What an incredibly weird... And talk about, like, that is a movie where we have to do all the King's men, Chris, at some point, because that movie was... Everybody thought, everybody thought that thing was like a slam dunk. Look at everybody who's in it. Yeah. Um, obviously, Steve Zalian, how, how can he miss? Um, but also, like, he's an Oscar, you know, winner and things. But that is also, um, it's the only yeah. remake of a Best Picture winner ever. Like, I was going down this rabbit hole because Alfie is, the original Alfie mm-hmm. was a Best Picture nominee. And it, it was, yes. most people are not bold enough to remake a Best Picture nominee, but it happens more often than Best Picture winner, which All the King's Men was the only yes. time people had that hubris. Well, until, uh, you know, Cimarron gets remade sure. next year, but yes. But that yes. that starts the worst run of Jude Law's career, arguably. I mean, he gets kind of mm-hmm. stuck in nowhere land for a bunch of years until Sherlock Holmes kind yeah, let's, of makes him a little bit let's relevant. Let's examine again. that for a second. Yeah. Yeah, so after the 2004 you know, glut. 
His right. next movie, sorry, I'm scrolling down in IMDb. All the King's Men was his following yeah. film. That was All supposed to come out in 2005. Movie, 2006. It was supposed to be a 2005 right. release, and everyone thought it was going to be Best Picture Frontrunner, yes. and then it got pushed back. So he doesn't appear in anything for over a year. Yep. And it does sort of contribute that to that sense of he's sort of licking his wounds after right. being he's sort taking of getting his ass kicked in 04. It's almost two years at um, that point. And then that year he has three movies all coming out within three months again. So the jokes get to resurface. Right. Breaking and Entering premieres at the Toronto Film Festival in 06, but I don't think it's released until early 07. Yeah, like February, March type It thing. might have gotten a qualifying release. I think it did. It's one of those movies that... Um, People didn't quite know what year it was it counted mm-hmm. for. Yeah. I remember because I think there was a lot there was people saw that movie later on. I don't think it really had a whole lot of impact. This is Anthony Minghella's. Uh, it got a qualifying release and then it really came out in January. But they and were they right. were running it for Oscar consideration that year. Yeah. But I remember that was one of those movies that like only months later, people were like, you know, what was a pretty interesting movie is Breaking and Entering. It got totally swallowed up and and, and sort of ignored yes. that year. Yeah. Yeah. And then The Holiday, of course, is 06. Which people forget that The Holiday was not a hit when it came out. It was Nancy's least successful right. movie. It was seen as mm-hmm. like a failure for everyone involved. Its reputation has grown since yeah. then. But that was her yeah. one underperforming film at the time. Yeah. My Blueberry Nights is interesting because there was a lot of expectation for that being Wong Kar Wai's first um, American film, and the cast was really interesting. Jude Law and Natalie Portman. Jude Law and Natalie Portman for the third time together, which um, I I was interested in because I loved them together for their first two movies together, Cold Mountain and uh, Closer. Right, Nora Jones getting the the lead role and... You know, Rachel Weisz is in that movie, and Strathairn's in that movie, and it's really well cast. And I don't know if I think it's a bad movie, but it it falls out of your head pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, this is a run I of him it's... making things that on paper look like good choices. All the King's Men, Breaking and Entering, it's like Reteam with Minghella, star-studded Best Picture remake. Uh, Nancy Myers has had, like, two big hits in a row. Wong Kar Wai's first English-language film, then you're going to remake Sleuth with Kenneth Branagh, Harold Pinter, and Michael Caine himself. Like, all of this seems like it should be the right choice, and it's essentially, like, five misses in a row. Remaking mm-hmm. sl- remaking another Michael Caine movie was, you know... Pretty wild. A little brave. Yeah. Like, that's that's a choice right there. Yeah. After after Alfie did uh, Crash and Burn, um, he's one of the replacements replacements for Heath Ledger in Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, yeah. which is a real weird slash interesting slash not bad movie, actually. Like, it's... I find it fairly interesting. Um, he's... I feel like he's the least of those three. I think Depp and Farrell are more interesting mm-hmm. in what they do with that... Um, in Parnassus than him. And then, of course, end of 2009, Sherlock Holmes, where he realizes, oh, I can just play everything real big. And right. and also, I can be a character actor. Because mm-hmm. then it's then it's his good run of, I mean, Contagion, like Hugo, Anna Karenina. Like, then he's back in a good zone. Like, 2009... He's fantastic in Anna Karenina. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Contagion, he makes the choice to play... A blogger where the choice is, uh, I'm going to have a snaggletooth, which yeah. is 
Teeth. Very stuff. interesting. Yeah. I like that performance um, though, but he's making real choices. I, do I mean, too. all I of like these are about contagion. He's not being precious about his movie star image. Uh, he's he's taking smaller roles, uh, and he's yeah. not with zero vanity, and he's making real choices with them. I mean, he gets his groove back. Do you like side effects? I don't like side effects, but I like. I don't him. like it. I like side effects a lot. I'm 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 fully pro side effects and pro Jude in side effects. I it's interesting that uh, I I liked um, the report so much this year, which was also uh, Scott Z Burns, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Um, because I remember I had seen a screening of side effects where Scott Z. Burns and Rooney Mara and Jude Law were giving a Q&A after. This was at uh, uh, the Walter Reed, I believe. And um, this was a very sort of like early impression of Rooney Mara I got, where she was being very, to me, annoying. And sort of like every question, she kind of like physically cowered and like buried her head in Jude Law's shoulder and was just like, I don't know, I'm not gonna, whatever. And... um, and then Scott Z. Burns answer that somebody asked him about because the twist and side effects, obviously, whatever. Fast forward thirty seconds if you don't want to know. The twist and side effects is that Catherine Zeta Jones and Rooney Mara are like in sort of like uh, lesbian cahoots mm-hmm. to very uh, Mrs. Danvers. Yes, and so somebody asked him, you know, well, what do you think about the sort of the thematic uh, significance of this, and what was what made you? Uh, throw this twist into the movie and he basically was just like i thought it'd be hot like i thought it'd be hot if you know uh catherine if whatever if the two lead females into this and i was just like you're sound like an asshole i don't know so Uh, i was okay i was predisposed maybe uh against side effects but Mm -hmm. i i do think law is that's again though as griffin as you're saying like i can be a character actor and like i think that's a great example of that kind of a role for him yeah totally he's coming back into it a little bit with the star persona but like kind of in interesting ways i mean we'll forget that fantastic beasts is happening but like we never talk about him being in spy and i think he is great in spy he's we probably never talk about it because everybody else is you know on 11 in spy in terms of greatness i like him better than statham in spy i know everybody loves jason statham in spy i think i do love jason statham in spy uh, that but that's like, a movie yeah, that's where a I wish that he's doing his character could be British as well. I think it, it is one of Jude Law's weak points is his American accent. Yeah, and because he's playing such sense. a James Bond type in that movie, it sticks out even more that he's wearing the suit and he has the hair, and you know the guy is British, and they're not letting him speak in his real voice. That makes sense. Also that definitely makes Pope sense. The Pope shows. I think the Pope shows are very, very interesting. And I haven't really watched them, so I don't know if I can speak with too much expertise on them. But just from the marketing of it, I'm like, oh, you're playing this very intelligently in terms of, again, playing off of the fact that Jude Law was this devastatingly handsome, charming, talented Mr. Ripley, whatever. And now it's like his, the hairline's gone a little bit. And there's, a, you know, I was going to say post-hunk yeah. character yes. in, the, in the young Pope, which I think it, is fascinating. It happens to a lot of those guys. I mean, Colin Farrell had somewhat of a similar thing, but some of these guys, when the industry gets so behind them, is so convinced that they're a conventional leading man when that's not really what they're best at. Um, they don't really sort of find their way into making something of those types of parts until 
they start to age until they tar- until they start to get wrinkles and bags under their eyes and their hair starts to go and then they start to gain a little yeah. gravitas that makes them feel a little more dimensional when playing those sorts of parts. So before we get into the game portion of our podcast, I did want to say, was there any sort of last thoughts? I'm sort of going through my notes. I like that uh, the nanny's Renee Taylor got a little bit of a role mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of an older woman who, you know, she's very much like, oh, Alfie, that's sort of like her, basically her role in this is to sort of take his personality with gentle good humor. I did appreciate that they had uh, the Beach Boys Little St. Nick in the one scene, which is a Christmas song that I remember a lot from my childhood. My dad had the Beach Boys Christmas album. It so um, really, really like that. I thought it was interesting. I did write at some point in my notes just impotence a cancer scare and a pregnancy scare all in the same movie feels like a lot in terms lot. of these very cliched um what's gonna make our playboy uh turn his life around and it's wow all three of them huh okay in the original the cancer scare is like a 20 minute section of the movie i mean it's like a major major movement of it where he's mm-hmm. hospitalized and he forms this relationship with his sort of a uh roommate at the hospital and then uh, his wife is the character, the the Neil Long equivalent. Um, so for them to just kind of yeah. throw it in this movie very wantonly and resolve it, uh, that's the only other thing I kind of want to mention about it. Basically immediately. Yeah, I, I like uh, Dick Latessa's performance a lot. The character is I was about so, to so rammed in there. I mean, he's essentially magical old man, uh, having the yes. most intense... Uh, thoughtful, in-depth conversation that anyone has ever had while peeing. Um, but but I think he's very good. Yeah, he comes back again for a mm-hmm. scene on a beach. Dick Latessa, of course, Tony winner for playing Wilbur Turnblad. Am I wrong, Chris? Yes. In uh, in Hairspray. Very correct. Hairspray. Uh, my note. My note about that whole portion of the movie. I have just fuck that old man, Alfie, because honestly, <laughs> it did feel like. <laughs> that like there was a there there was a weird vibe i don't know the, a especially the scene, romance like it's with the, the two of them on the beach i feel like alfie would have learned a lot about himself if he would have just fucked that old man and i feel like it sure. would have been a, i always i mean i am famously like i think most movies would be better with a bisexual twist and this one is no different um a dave a dick latessa bisexual twist yeah. Oh, and on the subject of the closing credits, to just sort of call back, I wrote this Wallflowers video of a closing credits because it really did <laughs> feel like there was some kind of vibe there of just like this could be a Wallflowers video. To, to to your point, is there any question that if this movie were made 10 years later, if this was the 2014 remake of Alfie, that they would be yes. trumpeting an exclusively gay moment? That they would be all about patting themselves <laughs> on the back for one scene where they vaguely imply that Alfie has maybe slept with a man or where he winks at a guy for a moment. Because they pee next to each other. This is my feeling whenever I think about um, Steve McQueen's Shame, a movie that I really yes. like. But my least favorite part of that movie is, oh, what is rock bottom for Michael Fassbender in Shame? It's him yes. getting a blowjob. Getting a blowjob. He doesn't have yes. to touch dick at all that's how you know the guy is truly monstrous yeah truly his life has spun out of control that he's getting a beach from somebody in a party and i was just like this movie has fully lost the courage of its convictions and i i again still like that movie but like that really pissed me off yeah i don't like that movie yeah 
I get it. <laughs> I get it. I think, yeah. I'll have to, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I remember um, it being a very big deal for both um, noble reasons and purient reasons. I sure. think there was a lot of just mm-hmm. like, get a look at this guy's hog in this movie. But also, like, Carrie Mulligan, I think, is fantastic. It's I agree. Sort of runaway Incredible. train kind of a thing. Incredible. I think she would have been my supporting actress winner that year. I think she's she that would have been mine. Um, but yeah. So what? Else? Any other? Any other final Alfie thoughts before we get into the games? The reason this movie is perhaps an abomination is within <laughs> a small stretch of time. He refers to his penis as Big Ben and then sprays cologne on it. <laughs> It's a really good take. What's the advantage? No, what what that? What is metrosexuals of the world ring in? Because I, I, I don't know. And he's just gone out of the way to point is. out, I never put it above the neck. Look at me. I just do a tiny little bit. I, I'm disgusted by men who wear too much cologne. Now I'm going to put it on my penis. On my penis. A nice, fun surprise for any woman who makes it that far. In yeah. Date to, yes. Uh, uh, perfume famously tastes wonderful. Tastes great, yeah. less yeah. filling. Um, yeah, Chris, is that your is that your final? <laughs> that is my final, final note about it? this movie. I like that, <laughs> Griffin. What? Do you, anything else you want to say? No, I think I front loaded all of my opinions. I mean, I do think the film is kind of interesting as a time capsule. It's sort of interesting in the way that the film itself is as glib as the character, which gives it some sort of meta weight, even though you can't give that credit to the movie itself. Um, oh, this is the one yeah. thing I was thinking. Just because I rewatched it very recently, because it is one of my go-to anxiety movies, and we're living in a very anxious time. But the movie that I think does a better job of coming up with a contemporary kind of spin on Alfie it is obviously not a remake. It is based off an entirely different piece of source material. Uh, but it is maybe saved by the fact that it's not trying to be Alfie and can just come up with its own version of what is the 2000s metrosexual version of an Alfie type sort of Lothario, I think is About a Boy. I think the the Hugh Grant oh, character yeah. in About a Boy is generationally the equivalent of what Alfie was in the 60s. And I think the key to it, as we sort of talked about here, is that movie has enough edge. His performance has a lot of anger to it. Um, and it's also, it's telling a different story. It's not trying to repeat the same beats. But I was watching this, uh, trying to figure out why I took to it so hard the first time I saw it, aside from the fact that I saw it with the most kind of in-the-pocket crowd possible. Um, right. Mm-hmm. But but I think it is that I I love about a boy. You so rarely get a studio comedy, and, and especially now, you never get a big studio comedy with a big movie star that is sort of thoughtful, is not high concept, has edge, is based on human beings and their relationships to each other, and has some sort of statement to say about sort of uh, where we're at culturally. And I think I so desperately wanted Alfie to be another about a boy that I was I was fully swayed yeah. by the, uh, the blue-haired ladies who were eating it up surrounding me. Yeah. Hugh Grant has a really great case for having the most uh, should have been nominated for an Oscar and then hasn't been nominated for Oscar performances. I think about a boy it's, I mean, O2 is a really good year for best actor, but like 
insane that he doesn't get nominated he, for that. He 100% should have been nominated, yeah. Tony Collette was probably closer to getting nominated for that movie than he was. Yeah, and yeah, both of them yeah, really should have gotten in. Fantastic. Uh, and there was a recent blank check where you guys were talking about Florence Foster Jenkins, and he's so good Agreed. in that movie. He yeah. was... Was he Globe and SAG nominated for that yeah. and then didn't get the Oscar? Yeah, but that right? that's just the egregiousness of them positioning him as supporting when he is more of a lead than Meryl is in that movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think even like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Best Picture nominee, that yeah. was his big breakthrough. I think, I think the fact that he became such a sort of cutie pie sensation in America for that movie kind of worked against him. People didn't take him seriously as an actor. Yeah. They thought he, he was, was sort, sort of, of floppy haired, stammering right. sort of like yeah. guy. But he's great in that movie. Yeah. Um he's all he's gonna be one of those people who is gonna end up getting an Oscar nomination for something bad. <laughs> And we're mm-hmm. just going to be like, why? Well, like, the the one where it felt like 70. it, yeah, the one where it felt like it should have happened was Paddington too. But Warner Brothers had no interest in <laughs> pushing that as an Oscar win. But he got a BAFTA nom for that, and that was kind of the best reviewed performance I, I of his about career. That. Yeah. He got Best Supporting Actor from the BAFTAs. It just felt like the you know the, Warner Brothers had no interest in putting any energy into getting that movie any nominations, let alone a major nomination. Well, I mean, they had already sort of seen Jim Carrey and Lemony Snicket, so they thought, ah, the, the, you know, this kind of performance <laughs> has been done. Sure. Um, all right, Griffin, on your podcast, on Blank Check, mm-hmm. you guys sort of end your podcast with David quizzing you on the box office rankings of the weekend that the movie in question came out. We have... Uh, humbly uh, asked whether you would be able to import that to this had Oscar buzz Happily. for this week. Yes, I'm so so excited uh, to ask you for the domestic 2004 box office for the weekend of November 5th, the weekend that Alfie um, went wide. Yes, wide release. Alfie released yep. in 2,215 theaters, and yeah. truly. Yikes! Um, but uh, yeah, take your take your best shot. Well, so this I remember seeing this movie in September. It was supposed to come out in October, and then they punted it to November, and they put it up against what, from my memory, would be the biggest film of that fall, box office wise. This movie opened against The Incredibles, did it not? It yes, did. It Incredibles did. number one. I just remember, because I was trying so hard to sell people on Alfie before I saw it for a second time, and the second they rescheduled it to Against the Incredibles, I went, this movie is going to die. It is going to be laid out to die. Not necessarily going for the same audience, but yeah. um, yeah. But it was just, Pixar was so dominant at that point, it was a superhero movie, it was like everyone was going to go see that, no one's going to go see Alfie. All right, so Incredibles number one, do you add any, any guess at the total gross for its opening weekend? I think it You're did very scarily good at this. I think it did 70, right? It did 70, 70 million. Cause there was, there was yep. a stat at that point that every Pixar movie had opened bigger than the previous one. And yeah. Incredibles only just barely edged out finding Nemo. I think finding Nemo opened to 69 or 70 and Incredibles opened to 71. I say I, I have seventy point four, but yeah, uh, that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's pretty pretty damn close. And of course, Nemo is a summer opening, whereas Incredibles right. is opening uh, first weekend of November. So yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, but not like, I mean, it's interesting. November, yeah. but not really holiday November. It's, you know. No, that was their not, corridor you know, for a little while, was to like open at the very beginning of November so that they could get a, a second wind when Thanksgiving came about and a third wind for Christmas. Right. Yeah. And 04, Harry Potter, this was the year that Harry Potter had opened in the summer, right? This is Azkaban? Uh, correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and Lord of the Rings yeah. had ended the year before, so I don't... Because I a lot of times that of, was why right. people were running away from the fall, right. was running away from late November, was yeah. that was kind of Harry Potter's spot for a while. I, I can't think of anything that was a bigger hit that fall than The Incredibles. So it's just funny for a movie that exists as little as Alfie to open against the most dominant box office film of that quarter. All right, so a distant number two okay. is, uh, what do you think? Uh, this isn't opening. This is a film that's already been out. This is week two. Week two. So it was number one the week before. And what's it doing this weekend? Uh, it's a cool 13.6 million. It um, opened in second place, actually. It was not the number one movie. Interesting. Of the week before. And what what did it do its first weekend? Oh. Let's see. I'm going to pull that up. It opened to $20 million the week before. Is this a horror film? No. Nope. No. This is a uh this is an awardsy film. This is an awardsy film that opened to 20 and did tw- Oh, it's not no. Ray came out in September or October? Is it Ray? It's Ray. Right, Ray. right, right, yep. because Ray came out on fucking Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so it's Ray. yeah, perfect yeah. perfectly make, makes a ton of sense for Ray yes. to open on Halloween. Absolutely. Right. It is a horror yeah. film in many ways. Which your number three should hopefully uh, be a little easier to guess. Because it was the number one movie the week before. So it's dropping. It had been, it had outgrossed Ray, but has dropped further. Barely, like by a million. By a million. Uh, Trying to think what would have beaten Ray at the box office. And what does it do in total? What does it end up grossing? 88. Eighty-eight at that point. Oh, sorry. Uh, at that point, it, it, it closed at one hundred and ten. Stupid new box office mojo. I hate you so much. I hate new box office mojo. So this it is closed at one hundred and ten. This is there a we go. This is a big unqualified hit. Yes, and of course, yes. again, uh, this time of year, this is right. this one makes more sense. Is this, this the grudge? This is the yes, grudge. It's the grudge. Okay. Well, done. well done. And then your Number- next movie, also uh, appropriate for this time of year, was in its second week of release. But it like this one kind of uh, began, it was sort of kicked off an era. Of, Is this mm-hmm. Saw? Saw the it first saw. saw, yeah. Which, for whatever reason, I always thought was earlier in the two thousands, but uh, apparently not. Oh, apparently oh four, yes. Yeah. Oh four, Saw, which was I remember at the time being kind of notorious for the sort of um, like sadism of it all and Mm -hmm. and that like you know you ain't seen nothing yet apparently you know essentially with with (laughs) quickly uh, devolved into a theme park attraction yeah yeah it is one of those Uh, things where it's it's not that it feels tame now but it doesn't feel shocking in the same way yeah 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 your fifth is elfie interestingly sarandon takes the fifth and sixth slots on uh oh interesting top 10 list yeah so Alfie opens at number six. That's insane. 
that's a no, Alfie's number five. five. Oh, Alfie's five. five. Okay, what... you're having me guess six, which also has Sarandon in it. Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind, we can. I know. Yeah, no, no, uh, no. no. I'm happy to. Ten is a little. Uh, okay, wait. Susan Sarandon, two thousand four. Is she the lead or is she just part of the ensemble? She's third build. She's third. She's like the, she's the romantic interest in this movie. She's the romantic interest in 2004. But there's also sort of like a surrogate female, would you say? Right, Chris? Like yeah. There's, yeah. There's the leading man. Sarandon is the one he loves. and But there's also like a woman who sort of facilitates. This is also a remake. Interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's a remake. Is it- I think. Or it was remade. I'm going to let me clarify that. Oh, 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 oh. I think I know what it is. Is it Shall We Dance? It's Shall We Dance. Yes, it is, it is a Jennifer remake. Lopez, Susan Sarandon. I think it's a remake of a Japanese movie, maybe? I do believe. Uh, number seven, while Chris looks that up, uh, number seven is an animated movie in its sixth week of release. Number seven, animated movie, sixth week of release, uh, 2004. So it came out in September? It came out, yeah, uh, that would have been, yes, late September. The original Shall We Dance, 1996, made in Japan. So Interesting. 2004 animated movie, dumped in September. This is not a major film. Is this like a movie that barely exists? No, it ended up being an Oscar nominee for an animated feature that year. Yeah. I mean, it's not, like, the most well-loved movie, yeah. but I think people remember it. People remember it for being sort of star-studded in its uh, voice. Mm-hmm. Oh, cast. oh, is this a film I hate? Is this the movie Shark Tale? It is Shark Tale. Yes, that's <laughs> a terrible movie. Scorsese that's that's a, a, a disgusting yeah. Oscar nomination. Yeah. Uh, number eight is a film that's far more well-known for a television series. Uh, far more... In its fifth week of release. It's not, uh, uh, no, no, far more well-known for a television series. Is it like a continuation or is it remake of a TV show? Nope, we came first. The movie came first and then became a TV show. Yes. Widely beloved television show. Um, Very beloved, struggled for ratings. Oh, Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights, yes. Yeah. The era of... September football movies. Yes. Yeah, very September much September so. high school football movies. Um, number, what is this, number nine? Next one? Yes. Um, is a movie that Chris and I talk about, but only in relation to w- the one of the love interests in this movie, who is uh, uh, a sort of minor key actress who I love because she was on a reality show. Yes. So it's a, it's a Jacinda Barrett movie. It is a Jacinda Barrett movie. It's a Thank Jacinda you. Barrett well done. Movie. Well done. Thank you. So is yeah. this the last? Kiss? We are the only three people that will identify this movie as a Jacinda Barrett movie. <laughs> as a Jacinda Barrett movie. Uh, is it is it the last kiss? No. No. Is it school for scoundrels? No. No. That also I think was a little later. Um, two so very it's... big stars. Oh, 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 it's uh, The Human Stain? No, no, no. no. Human <laughs> Stain was the year before. This I've named almost every Jacinda Barrett movie now. <laughs> you have. We didn't There's realize that this... We had an episode where one of the stars awarded the other star with their Golden Globe and said, my friend, 
ex person, and oh, we yeah. were like, "Why are they friends?" In the ep- in whatever episode we talked about it, and it's because of this movie. It's because of this movie. Yeah. Um, what else can we tell? It's the you craziest about this movie? person you could imagine being like my friend, famous actor, Walt Disney Studios film, but like it's live Walt action. Disney Studios, right? Right. Was it like a Touchstone movie? It must Probably. have been. It must have been. Yeah. Um, very much a sort of post 9-11 movie in terms of like... I was going to say. What we valued as a society uh, in the sentiment. post-9-11 area. Yeah. And she is the the love interest to the lead of the movie? To the younger lead. There's an old, a yeah. little, you know, a lead who's a little bit older than the younger. I'm assuming it's like a mentor-mentee relationship. That makes sense yeah. to me. From the director of... It's um, a, is it Ladder 49? It's Ladder it 49. It is Ladder 49. From the director you know of I The had... Water Horse and Tuck Everlasting. For how quickly I guessed that you were talking about Jacinda Barrett, yes. I had no idea she was in that movie. <laughs> that was the worst hint I could have gotten. I was going to run through every other Jacinda Barrett movie I could think of. I had no idea You were she almost was in to that Zach Braff movie that uh, also doesn't exist. I said that, The Last Kiss. Oh, yeah, oh okay, I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I guessed also every Jacinda movie I had in the tank, yeah. And then number 10 is an animated movie that um, a lot of people really love and I kind of despise. Um, from uh, a very kind of anti-establishment, we don't like, you know, either the right or the left and we're gonna... Uh, you know, our political stance this is a very sort of political animated movie, which in it's 2004, a... everything was kind yeah. of political. This being the year of um, Fahrenheit. I always think of this movie in triptych with Fahrenheit 9-11 and The Passion of the Christ. Totally. In just terms of just like, wow, there were some movies that were just sort of very overtly controversial, making good money. Weird. Originally not... got an NC-17 rating. Okay, oh, this is. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a stickler here. I'm going to be a stickler here. This is not an animated film. Oh, I yes, I guess you probably. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. It's not. It's Team well, America: World Police is a live it's, action it's movie a, starring puppets. It's it's as animated as most stop motion things are. Disagree. Though, right? Disagree. Disagree. No, because it's all it's filmed in real time. That's that's the distinction for me. I'm gonna stop defer motion to you, is you're still manipulating you. footage in order to create movement. Yeah. Whereas Team America is puppets are moving in real time in front of cameras with camera movements. All you know, right, you're shooting Einstein. that film All live. Right. All right. This I'll is give, a fight for another you. time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Team America World Police. I hate this movie. This is the movie that really, like, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's sort of uh, libertarian worldview really got under my skin for this movie that uh, basically made the uh, both sides argument before sort of that was kind of notorious of like, well, you know, George W. Bush and all of them getting us into the war is bad, but so are the annoying Hollywood liberals who <laughs> bleh. And it's just like, hey, fuck them. Well done. Thank you for playing the box office game of this, Griffin. Of course. Fun. Yeah. And now, uh, Chris, why don't you, for our listeners, uh, read off the rules for the IMDb game? Listen, guys, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress and we try to guess the top four titles that IMDb and their elusive algorithm say they are most known for. Uh, if any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. 
that is the IMDb game. Love a free-for-all offense. Um, Griffin, as our guest, you are going to get to choose A, who you want to give your clue to, and B, whether you want to um, give a clue first, get a clue first, or observe first. Oh, interesting. Uh, I'd like to get a clue first, please. Okay, um, okay, and then would you want that clue to come from Chris or myself? Uh, I'll, I'll take a clue from you, please, Joe. All right, I have picked one especially for you. Um, of course, we were talking about the films of Charles Shire this week, one of those films. Uh, two of those films, actually, we were mentioning the Father of the Bride series, co-starring one Mr. Martin Short. So, uh, Griffin, please, the IMDb known for for Martin Short. Okay. No television, no voice role. Wow. That's kind of surprising for him, actually. Yes. Um, Okay, I'm going to guess the three amigos. Correct. Well done. Yeah. A favorite of mine when I was growing up. I'm sort of afraid to go revisit it now uh, in terms of I can't imagine the... uh, fish out of water in mexico thing is full of a lot of really you know proud jokes <laughs> these days but i yeah. i saw it uh uh i i think maybe about 10 years ago now and and there is not the type of humor that i was afraid i was going to find okay. upon revisiting perhaps it. i'll revisit now maybe i'd watch it again tomorrow and uh disagree but yeah. i i found it pretty clean in that regard the Three Amigos, I remember being a question at Trivia one time where they said, what was the movie star- the, where the characters were Ned Niederlander, Dusty Bottoms, and Lucky yeah. Day? And it drove me crazy Insane. until I realized yeah. it was Three Amigos. Yeah. All right. So you got one for one. Um, I would like to guess Martin Short. Is Father of the Bride in his four? No. No. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Neither. I will say that's neither Father of the Brides. Are in neither story. one. Okay. We will combine them as one guess. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's hard with him because he's one of those guys who like has done so much work, but there aren't that many like defining Martin Short movies, you know? And I will say um, the ones you are still missing are a mixture of lead and supporting and i would venture to say cameo roles he's also one of the ones that i'm surprised that it doesn't have a voice oh yeah for sure. or tv in particular i feel like yeah i i wouldn't be surprised if, if glick or sctv were in his four um yeah okay do, 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 do. well clifford's not gonna make the cut i assume cliff uh, yeah. unfortunately right that's the thing. It's like his his films in which he was the pure lead are the films that have less love culturally than the films in which he has smaller parts. Um, uh, I I I don't want this to be true, but is is the Santa Claus three one of his four films? <laughs> I am oh, shocked, but really impressed. Yes, the Santa yes, Claus three, Santa Claus. which was titled what the was that the Mrs. The no, Escape Clause, the Escape Clause, Escape right. Clause. It's the Where Escape he plays, Clause. Uh, Martin Short plays, of course, Jack Frost in Jack Frost. Santa Claus three. It is his first in his known for. 
Yes, it's the I, first you know, one. It, it was my first guess, and I didn't guess it because I didn't want it to be true. I wanted to believe <laughs> that IMDb's algorithm was better than that. Okay, so we have Santa Claus 3. We have Three Amigos. One of these films, you would say, is essentially a cameo. Yes. Is maybe like a meaty maybe cameo. A little, maybe a little bit of a beefed up cameo, but yeah. Yeah. Right. And you were counting Santa Claus as the one that's kind of a lead? No, there's one where he is no. like one of two leads. Okay, okay, that's a helpful hint. Okay. So there's one film that's really like Martin Short and another person. Uh, and then one film in which it is kind of a, a goosed up cameo. Not to jump the gun, but one of your favorite filmmakers, I believe, as far as like me, oh, me knowing oh, you. Oh, Mars Attacks? No. No, not Mars Attacks. Different filmmaker, but uh, so now he gets the years. Oh yeah, so yeah, uh, your years are 1987 and 2014. 1987 and 2014. So the 2014 is Inherent Vice. Yes, yes, that's right. That's okay. your uh, your glorified cameo, uh, Inherent Vice. Gotcha. And then the 1987 one is one of my favorite filmmakers. I think I got this. It's Inner Space. Inner Space, directed by Joe Dante. I there knew as go. soon as I saw okay. that, I was just like, Griffin's going to end up like, yeah. Yeah. The Santa Claus is the reason why I picked this for you, because as soon as I saw that, I was just like, I got to try. I got to see if I can <laughs> stump him on the Santa <laughs> Claus. Fun. But you I forget what episode it is. Well uh, I forget what episode it is. I think it's one that we've recorded, but it hasn't come out yet. But we went on an extended riff about uh, the Santa Claus trilogy and how weird they are. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're kind of fresh in my mind i've been thinking about them a lot recently i really really want you guys to do a joe dante uh miniseries i know you've been you were yes, writing hard for it during the last two um march yeah. madness tournaments if you ever do get a john joe dante miniseries i demand to be on the burbs episode i don't know how far that's going to get me um, oh, Joe, right. you are the okay. noted defender of the birds. I love the, the birds. culture so severely. It's so good. That is the movie because it was the Twitter meme going around of uh, what was the tagline of the movie that was number one at the box office the weekend you were born. I did not realize the Burbs was the number one movie at the box office my birthday weekend. And what oh, was the tagline? Wow. Do you remember? Uh, yes, because there are two taglines and one of them I really don't like in reference to me, which is There's now, always you know, one bad tagline and one good one, yeah. Because um, it, it's this Twitter thing where, you know, you're projecting, people are projecting the tagline onto your personality. Let me get the two taglines here. Oh, I see. Hold on one second. So the top the one is for the, the long one. The is so good because it's, um, so it's Hanks in his, like, PJs holding um, a grill spatula and a garden hose. And standing sort of in the middle of this cul-de-sac, and the sky is all very, like, threatening and lightning-y, and in the corner is the Klopex uh, sort of haunted house-looking thing. So the main tagline is, he's a man of peace in a savage land, dot, 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 suburbia. Yes. And then the, the lower tagline, which I think is terrible, and also doesn't really describe the dynamic of the movie well. It does A comedy not. about one... No. A comedy about one nice guy who got pushed too far. That makes it sound like it's falling down. That makes it sound like yes. it's a movie about this guy terrorizing suburbia, when in fact it's a movie about suburbia terrorizing this guy. 
Tom Hanks doesn't snap until the final 15 minutes of the movie. The movie is not about Tom Hanks being sort no, of... Oh, and he's surrounded by genuine evil. Like, supernatural yeah. evil. That's not right. a comedy about one nice guy getting pushed too far. No. I always, Also, though, props to a poster that's willing to do the two-tagline strategy. I think it's a bold strategy, and this one it you didn't love quite to work it. out. Yeah. Love Hanks in that movie, though. All right, so Griffin, why don't you give then to Chris uh, the the IMDb you've chosen? The IMDb I've chosen because of this film, and now I, we might have spoiled it a little bit because we talked around uh, some of the uh, typecasting she gets, but Marissa Tomei. Ah, okay. Uh, well, I'm just going to go and say all of her Oscar stuff is on there, so my cousin Vinny... In the Bedroom, and The Wrestler. You're correct. Oh. The fourth okay. one, I, wow. I think, for for as much as that was impressive that you got three in one go, and that her IMDb top four is respectable enough that it does give her her nominations, this fourth one is a real challenge. Yeah, because usually you don't, but like I feel like for her and what her credits are, usually where she falls on like billing because i feel like billing affects the algorithm it would make yeah. sense that all of hers would be on there i'm gonna say the fourth one is crazy stupid love incorrect uh, okay which is crazy because she's low on that billing i'd so it's like i just nullified what i just said um is it what women want incorrect okay that kind What's of surprises me because that movie made a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Right. Surprises That's why I went too. with both of those because those are popular movies. Oh, it, damn it. She's a Marvel person. We haven't had any Marvel show up on here. Is it The Amazing Spider? Not The Amazing Spider-Man. Is it um, Spider-Man Homecoming? Incorrect. Still and I will not. tell you, it is not any of her Marvel appearances, which is most surprising Thank to me. God. You feel like the algorithm would pump up like civil wars not avengers endgame and make that one of her top four uh no no none of the avengers films none of the marvel movies. what's the year on the fourth one though the year on the fourth one this is really tough is 2015 okay so it's semi-recent this is why I thought this was interesting, because three of hers are gimmies, as long as you trust the algorithm doing right. And then the fourth yeah. one, I don't understand how in the world this ended up here. The fourth one is inferior. It's gotta be on, like, I always say, if the movie is on heavy rotation on TNT, it shows up on there, because people are just sitting on their phones watching TV. Um, 2015, it, it has would have been before Marvel... It has something in common with one of your incorrect guesses. Some things in common, I would say. With one so it's a romantic comedy. No. 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 She's low in the billing. We can say that. It has that in common okay. with one of your guesses. She is not on the poster, and the poster has names on it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is it a superhero movie? That's no. not Marvel. Okay. But it's not a romantic Four comedy? Four men on this poster. Four men. Is it's an it ensemble cast. Four men on the poster. It can't be like Last Vegas. Can I give you my big hint that's either going to solve okay. it for you or make you uh, twice as confused? <laughs> okay. It's it. This is either going to give it to you immediately or you'll never guess it. 
uh, it's a Best Picture nominee. <laughs> Four men on the poster. Yeah. Oh, it's the big short. Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. Yep. That is infuriating. Isn't when that you insane? Get her three Oscar nominations, and then that awful movie that like does worse by her than any of the romantic comedies yes. that she is ever in that don't do right by her. That movie does even worse by Remind her. Remind me what her role in this movie is. She's Steve she Carell's plays, wife. Yeah. Uh, she consoles him over the suicide of his brother. That's her only role right. in the film is to sit there and tell yep. him to get in touch with his emotions. Uh, and most of, of her, her scenes co- are on the other end of a cell phone. Both of her co-stars from Crazy Stupid Love in this movie yeah. on the poster. That's right. That's right. It just, I was so ready for her top four to be, like, one of her Oscar nominations, one of her rom-com thankless roles, and two Marvel movies. And to have it be three of her Oscar, all three Oscar nominations, and then arguably her most thankless role ever is pretty nuts. Yeah. Big Short is interesting in that Brad Pitt on the poster is not surprising, but he is in such a minor key in this movie that I always yeah. forget he's in it. Yeah, He's same. so low-key. It's so strange. He's the only character who isn't the lead of his plotline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That plotline right, is totally Megaro yeah. and Finn Whitrock, and he's a supporting yeah. character in their narrative. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well done, Chris. Now, what do you have All for right. me? Joseph, for you, I went the Alfie route as well. However, I went to the original Alfie. For you, I have Michael Caine. Of course. Of course you do have Michael Caine. Um, now we run into the Batman problem of if it's one of them, if it is which one do I guess? I'm going to guess the Dark Knight. You're going to guess correctly. The Dark Knight okay. is on there. All right. Um, is the Cider House Rules on there? One of his Oscar wins, the Cider House Rules as well. And I might as well guess Hannah and her sisters just to get it out of my system. No. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. To Michael Caine. Is the original Alfie one of them? No. Okay. So you're getting your years. You have yeah, 2006 and also 2015. 2006 and also 2015. Um, so Batman Begins was 05. Is it um, uh, The Prestige? Never would have thought you got The Prestige that early. It is The Prestige. He, he's the one who explains in the trailer what The Prestige what is. What The Prestige is. Um, what's my other year? 2015. Is The Prestige one of those movies where everybody in it is, is that's on their IMDb? Maybe not. I don't but think I feel so. Like... It's not for like Scarlett Johansson. I don't think it's even for Rebecca Hall. Interesting. I feel like it's come up at least once, though, maybe. Um, I'm going to look what's... this up while you're guessing the rest of them, because now I want to test Thank your you. theory. Uh, one you know more who's time. awesome in The Prestige? Rebecca Hall. 2015, is that what you said? 2015. 2015, I feel like, is a year that comes up a lot, and I always feel like there's maybe a, um, like a pit of a... Of movies that I forget happened that year. We um, talk about 2015 a lot because we have a lot of 2015 episodes, and there's still like a million 2015 movies. I know, can. I know. Um, it's it's an interesting year for that. Um, okay, 2015. So it's none of the Batman movies. It is, but wait, is there another Nolan movie? Is this in? No, wait, Interstellar is 14. 
yeah. Yeah. Maybe six, yeah. But it's not, so it's not Nolan. The thing about Michael Caine in the 2010s is he'll take ninth billing in a movie. Like, he will sort of nestle comfortably into a supporting cast. I will, I will say this is, is absolutely, co- definitely yeah. not ninth build in this movie. Oh. This is kind of wild to make his four. Not yeah. because of his role in the movie, but because of the movie's role in uh, society. In, in, in culture. I would not say that this movie does not exactly not exist, but like th- nobody talks about this movie. It is Few an movies Oscar have movie. have, have faded faster. For a movie that kind of exists, it it's it exists a little bit less each day. Yeah. It's an Oscar nominee in a non-acting category? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Perhaps in a category that we spent some time talking about this very episode. Original song. Yes. Okay, so 2015 also, I'll, oh. I'll give you I'll give you Oh, are you do you have it? No, I was going to say he's not Inspector, right? No. No. Um, I will say this is, like, the only nomination it gets is song. It is the kind of movie that was designed to get Michael Caine an Oscar nomination. Oh, 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 oh. It's, I don't like this movie. This is youth. This movie's terrible. It is youth. Boy, oh boy. You know, it's, okay, I don't love this movie. This movie is, has a lot of interesting sort of angles to it. I think, actually, Rachel Weisz is very good in this movie. I agree. Um, She's the best thing about the movie. I remember Jane Fonda getting a Globe nomination and some Oscar buzz for it, and I thought it was, I love Jane Fonda, and I thought this movie kind of does her dirty a little bit. I think it makes her into a spectacle of sort of horror in a way that, like, I don't know, feels mean Borderline offensive, if not outright offensive. Yeah. Um, Kind of a fascinating movie. I don't love um, the, that director whose name I can't remember now. Paolo Paolo Sorrentino. Mastermind Uh, of the the Popes. Different director. Yes. Yes, Yes. exactly. Yeah. Bringing it back to Jude Law. Bringing it all back to Jude Law. But yeah, I I don't love uh, Sorrentino's movies in general, but... Uh, you've had some interesting things. Wow, really, really surprising that that's on his known for. For all of the Michael Caine, you could uh, you could come up with any Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, basically. Yeah, basically. Um, Interstellar would have made a lot of sense. All right, you guys. This has been a long episode, our longest episode. I can probably say with some confidence, which only makes sense because uh, Griffin uh, Blank Check is one of my favorite two bills plus podcasts i know i can settle in (laughs) for a good long haul with you guys (laughs) truly we mentioned you guys a lot on our podcast because you guys are uh you know one of our favorites and we really can't thank you enough for being on here amid quarantine amid all that's going on so thank you griffin yeah i have a very very busy schedule not leaving my home (laughs) but uh was happy to do it and please even if this ends up being one of your longer episodes feel free to cut it down so the nope. listeners don't know how nope. long this was in reality. Uh, as you often I think suggest, we have had longer, but it's yeah. it, it's been a while since we've cracked the two hours, so that's exciting. As you often suggest, uh, we'll double it, so we will cool. uh, keep it in double it. Yeah, <laughs> five hour podcast. That uh, is our episode. If you wanna, if you want more of this had Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Griffin, where can our listeners find you? Where would you like to direct them? Uh, 
for more of you? Uh, yeah, Blank Check with Griffin and David, available wherever podcasts are found. And I am always and forever promoting my very canceled TV show, The Tick, which is still streaming on Amazon. Who knows how long that lasts for, because, uh, you know, Lord Bezos can make any decision he wants at any moment <laughs> in time. I have no inclination uh, that it will disappear at any point, but uh, it might, so watch it, especially if you're stuck at home. Jeff Bezos, keep the tick on as long as possible. Donate all the rest of your money to people who need it right now. You have too much of it. So, yep. Um, Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. And you can you can find me here. You can find me here on this. Here on this hot Oscar buzz. As you can find me. I am also on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed is spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So park that Vespa on the cobblestones of London pretending to be New York City and write us a review, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope we'll be back next week for more buzz.